as many Waldorf teachers would say, it's an education for the whole child. So it really is meeting intellectual inquisitiveness on the level that children have. It's meeting their heart in terms of the social life of the class and also in terms of their feeling life through painting, through handwork, through singing, through recorders, through drama, um, and through socialization that occurs in the playground and the classroom. And then, you know, meets their need for physical activity through playing in the playground. Play is recognized as something very important, not a waste of time. And of course, many modern people are realizing that now. And through constructing things, there's this a strong thread that runs all the way through Waldorf education from modeling in the first grade with beeswax or other materials, uh, knitting, um, drawing, cutting out, um, constructing, and all of that goes all the way through the school. That's Michael Preston, and this is The Emerging Future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Joel DeYoung. This is the podcast where we get to talk to the curious, compassionate, and courageous co-creators of our desired and emerging future. Come on, isn't that great? Uh, These are people that call themselves artists, entrepreneurs, business leaders, um, sometimes just parents, uh, community activists. But, you know, really there's a common theme here, and it's people who are really cultural change agents. They're doing things that are impacting the world in a positive way, and they're informing the way that we move forward in the world uh, together with more solidarity and with more love. What's better than that, right? So today I get to talk to Michael Preston, and um, he's a gentleman that's been in my life for uh, many years now. He was actually a, a teacher. He taught my he taught my second son um, from first grade through third grade um, at Brightwater Waldorf School here in Seattle. And I get to share the conversation that we had together. I actually got to sit down with him for a couple of hours, which was such a gift. Um, but before we get into Michael, I just wanted to um, ask all of you listeners out there who are enjoying this podcast to hop on over to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and just write a review, just, just something, um, a note, um, that lets me know, you know, your thoughts on the podcast and, um, you know, just gives me a little bit of uh, feedback. I love meeting you in person when I run into people who have listened to this and, um, I'd love to interact with you more online if, uh, if you're willing to do that. So I appreciate that. So head on over to iTunes. It's the Emerging Future Podcast. You're probably already there because you're listening to this. Anyway, um, that would be appreciated if you would uh, write a little note, testimonial or something like that. So um, if you want to uh, reach out with me, not uh, through iTunes, um, you can find me. My handles on Twitter, Instagram, and Medium are all the same. It's my first and last name. So that's Joel Dion, J O. E-L-D-E-J-O-N-G. That's J-O-E-L-D-E-J-O-N-G. 
and you can find me Twitter, Instagram, Medium. Um, also, I do post the uh, show notes on Lyman.space slash Emerging Future. That's L-I-M-E-N dot space slash Emerging Future. So, Michael Preston. Like I said, um, he's been a, a an educator. He taught my son first through third grade, which was uh, a blessing for my son, a blessing for our family. And we we got to experience the depth of uh, Michael's journey and, and what he knows about um, educating youth, what he knows about uh, education uh, from a philosophical standpoint. And, and really, we got him. He, he uh, retired after third grade, which is why he only taught first through third. Actually, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Waldorf education, uh, traditionally, the, the teacher um, will actually move with the class um, through the grades. So first through eighth grade, maybe that's even through 12th grade in, in some parts of the world. But, um, yeah, the teacher moves through. So uh, Michael was my son River's teacher, first grade, second grade, and third grade, and then he actually retwi- retired. So I feel like we got him right um, at the at the end, kind of in his golden years. And, and there's so much uh, wisdom that he, he brings to uh, both education and to any of his interactions. So he's a master Waldorf teacher, but I consider him really a a wisdom elder, you know, someone who has lived a life of curiosity and authenticity. And he's learned much about the deeper insights and, and wisdom that that life makes available to us. And he shares in this conversation his journey, you know, how he came across Waldorf education and what were the things that were pulling them there. And he goes into um, these series of synchronistic events that really gave him the inner assurance to uh, pursue his life's work as a Waldorf educator. And these synchronicities and these synchronistic events, I I think that they're so important for us to pay attention to. And if you listen to Michael's story, if if he wasn't listening to those synchronicities, he would not have been able to kind of fulfill his, uh, vocation and, and really what was his, uh, his purpose, you know, for, uh, being here. And, and because he was able to listen to those synchronicities and pay attention to them and then act on them, he was able to impact so many, so many people, um, my son and my family included. Um, so he's, he's committed his life to, you know, training children, and, uh, and Waldorf education is a really kind of um, special way of, of teaching. And uh, we've learned a lot about it um, as, as our kids have, have been uh, learning in that way as well. And, and really how Michael explains it is, is uh, education for, you know, whole humans. You know, he's, he's trying to, um, through Waldorf, uh, you know, provide kids with the ability um, and the capabilities of moving through the world with intellectual inquisitiveness and, you know, compassion and socialization and play. And these are all the things that are sort of um, going to the wayside, um, um, sort of in in mainline ways of educating. So this isn't a conversation about uh, comparing one education or another. Um, It's really just a deep dive into Michael's journey. And, And Michael gives us, you know, some some really meaningful reflections on on his life, his journey, and and some wisdom in and around the way that we raise our children. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. It was um, 
it was it was quite a, a joy and a blessing to just sit there with Michael and, and have this exchange with him. So without further ado, here is Michael Preston. Sip coffee occasionally, is that all right? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> okay. This is the real world. Yeah, We're right, in reality yeah. here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we are sitting on Michael Preston's back porch mm-hmm. that he's constructed that serves as both a porch and a outdoor play area for the kids and an entry for preschool. <laughs> and actually, this is the philosophical corner here. Okay, when my wife and I sit here, we always get into discussions of all sorts of things like that. We're, we're, There's something about this corner here. <laughs> we're, on, we're in sacred ground. Yes, we are. Oh, wonderful. Well, thanks for having me here. Sure. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. Um, every time that we would come and meet with you yeah. uh, regarding River. And we well, do, we're talking about your son. We're talking about my son, River, uh, who you taught for three years yeah um first grade second grade and third grade mm-hmm. yeah we would have our teacher parent teacher conferences conferences yeah. and it seemed like the hour would fly by and you mm. would be um sharing with us yeah. your wisdom yeah. on river education and life and mary and i always left you know feeling like oh we'd love to have more conversations yeah so yeah. <laughs> thank you for letting me hijack sure. you for a couple sure. hours well I'm, I'm happy to be outside of the professional role Mm-hmm. So I'm in my everyday mode, not not sitting in the you know classroom because there's always some elements when you're a teacher or mm-hmm. a doctor or anything that you have to be aware of your your role, your position. Mm-hmm. That you're speaking for the school as well as for yourself and things like that. So now you're speaking for yourself. No, I'm speaking for myself, <laughs> as much I as I understand I, I myself. I can't wait to get into this. <laughs> okay. Well, that's an interesting thing to say, you know, as much as I understand mm-hmm. myself, because a, a lot yeah. of this mm-hmm. life is about discovering who we are. Yeah. Um, and you've been helping children do this for a long yeah. time. So how, how long have you been oh, well, uh, teaching I, older? I, I go right back to... When I finished high school in New Zealand, in those days they still had um, a, a British system originally. It was called volunteer service overseas okay. or volunteer service abroad. Uh, that's what the New Zealand um, government called it. And it was, I think it was a government-sponsored program where they would send university graduates to help developing countries. But in those days when I left school, they still had school leavers doing this because many of the developing countries were grateful to have even that level of education and and typically we would be teachers in primary schools or that kind of venue. So I volunteered for that and I managed, you know, we had to go and be interviewed multiple times and go and prove ourselves Uh on a weekend (laughs) retreat and teach and play an instrument and entertain people with stories and all sorts of things. So somehow or other I got through all of that and so I ended up being sent to what is now called Vanuatu. It's a chain of islands just to the west of Fiji. Okay. But it used to be called the New Hebrides because it was a British-French condominium. And um, the people there are Melanesian, so they're different to Polynesian culture. They're more animistic and, mm. in, you, you could say, more primitive in a certain way, and yet I found it an extraordinary experience to be there. They're very, very close to nature. I've learned all sorts of amazing insights and and 
techniques and understandings of the natural world that they had. And so that year, I, I, I was 17 when I went there, and I, so I taught for a year. That was my first year of teaching. 17 I, years old? Yeah, I turned wow. 18 quite soon because mm -hmm. that year went from January through to end of November or early December. And so I turned 18 in April. So the bulk of the year I was 18, but still I went there when I was 17. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really know a lot about what I was doing. I was this young, enthusiastic would-be teacher, and I had a combined class. I had about 16 kids whose age ranged from 9 to 13, so it was like a family grouping. Um, but I was very enthusiastic, and <laughs> my enthusiasm covered up the cracks and what, <laughs> what I didn't know. And uh, I just loved doing that work. And that then led me to the idea after the year, when I came back to university in New Zealand, that I would do sort of international teaching in developing countries. That was my original idea. And I um, took English, anthropology, education, and Maori studies because we were required to do a foreign language. Okay. And I was very bad at Latin and French, <laughs> which I'd done before. Um, and so, you know, I already knew I wanted to be a teacher, but then during that year, I started to read about Waldorf education. Okay. And uh, it's a longer story how I came into that orbit, but that, that led me to reading about the teacher training in England. And in those days, there was no training in America, in the United States. The teachers would go over to Europe. This was in the late 60s. Okay. And in fact, they kept alive the training institutions because they brought money. They were better off than the, their European counterparts. So I, I applied to this college in Sussex, south of England, Forest Row, and it was it was called Emerson College, named after Ralph Waldo Emerson. Oh, really? Okay. Because the, the leader of the college was very much admiring of Waldo Emerson's uh, entrepreneurial idealism and mm -hmm. attachment to nature and so on. And um, that had a foundation year, so it was really a reorientation on many levels, you know, just doing practical things like pottery, working in the farm. We did all the washing up and cleaning of the place, and it was many age groups. There were people, even some people retired that came there, as well as young people. I was second youngest there. I, I just turned 21 while I was at the college. Were you able to just sign up for it and go? Oh, no. I mean, I had to apply for it. And when I applied from New Zealand, I was in my first year of university, and I wrote in those days, they had those little blue aerograms that you wrote on, folded up, and sent off. Uh -huh. So I sent off my aerogram to Francis Edmonds, who was the director, and I said, I'd really like to come to Emerson. And he wrote back, uh, and I said, I'm, you know, I've been I've done a year of teaching, and I want to be a teacher. And um, he wrote back and said, well, if you want to be a teacher, then you ought to finish your degree. It's going to be help you to finish your bachelor's. And then I waited a bit, and then I wrote, and I said, Mr. Edmonds, I feel I'll be hard-boiled if I stay here. <laughs> My head will be hard-boiled. I, I want to come while I'm still open-minded. Wow. And so he wrote back and said, okay, you've convinced me, come. But my mother, I was the oldest of three boys. Um, she was really hoping I would stay and not leave. <laughs> but I had a kind of um, very strange experience in the middle of the year which um, is in June and July in New Zealand is winter and I'd been with a friend to the west coast on my motorbike 
and got very cold on the way back. And when I started up on Monday at the university, I was in the um, cafeteria and my hands started shaking crazily and my teacup was rattling and I thought, oh gosh, I got flu. So I got on the motorbike, headed home, and then I had a kind of fever. And the next day I was okay. Um, and But then the fever came back exactly at the same time. So my mother called our local doctor. And this doctor was just the nearest one when we, when we moved to New Zealand. We just happened to have this medical place. New Zealand was completely free. So we were just assigned to this particular place. And this particular, so this doctor was a, a German man originally. His name was Dr. Friedlander. So he came to my bedside and said, I think you've got glandular fever. We'll do a blood test, took the test. Another day went by and I got, my fever was going up each day higher. And um, my mother called him and said, well, it's, he's, he, the lab said, no, you don't have glandular fever. And my mother said, well, my son's fever's gone up even higher. So he came back. Now, during this year, I was reading about Rudolf Steiner and Waldorf education. Mm -hmm. And I had two or three books on the side of my bed and when he walked in the room to see me a second time, he saw his eye fell on the books, and he said, are you interested in Steiner? And I said, yes, I am. I'm reading about him. And he said, well, I'm an actually a Steiner-trained doctor as well as a regular doctor. I'm an anthroposophical. In fact, I'm the only one in New Zealand. What? Yes. And I said, well, you know, I mean, it was just an extraordinary... I, I do believe in these kind of interesting meetings. So mm -hmm. he, he, he then took a second blood test, and I found I had malaria. And okay. I'd got malaria in Vanuatu, unknowing, you know, it was in my blood. Mm -hmm. And it just was triggered by stress, I guess, by the um, mm -hmm. motorbike journey and things. So I recovered from that. But, but wh when I was having those high fevers, this Dr. Friedlander, he said, well, from a, a spiritual point of view, uh, although, you know, you've probably got malaria, because he said, I'll do the, bl I think that's what it is. He questioned me about where I'd been. Mm -hmm. um, he said, a fever is often a wrestling of your spirit with something, with a question you can't solve. And he said, when you come out of all of this, then you'll probably know the answer. And I said, that's really interesting you say that because I'm trying to decide whether I should go to this Emerson College. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my mother's putting motherly <laughs> pressure on me and, 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 you know, wisdom in a way. Why don't you finish your university training? Why don't you stay here? And but I felt this huge urge that I wanted to head off across the world and go to England and do the training. And um, so the f he gave me this medicine that you give to kind of knock malaria on the head. I think it was called Primaquin or something. And the, the fever passed, but I was pretty exhausted by now. I'd had mm -hmm. like three or four days of, I think four days of high fevers. And I woke up in the morning and... Um, I just felt completely peaceful and calm, and my mother came in the room, and after saying good morning, I said, Mom, I've decided I'm going to England. And she looked at me uh, in my eyes and just saw this resolve, this kind of quiet resolve that mm -hmm. had just come about. And so that led to me going to England later and doing the training. Mm -hmm. You, you said it's an interest. You believe in these. Yeah, I do believe in these meetings. I've had many extraordinary things like that. Um, that takes a, a person who's attuned and open to the opportunity for a, a, a meeting 
to, mm -hmm. to happen. So Carl Jung calls it synchronicities, yeah. right? When yeah. there's a meeting like that yes. where he, the only doctor who yeah. is trained in anthroposophy, is that how you say? Anthroposophical medicine. Anthroposophical Yeah, it's a bit like homeopathic medicine. Okay. There's some similarities. So, but he's in the way that you're seeking yeah. and then comes to your bedside right. while you're having a yeah. fever. Yeah. And then tells you that you're probably struggling with a question that yes. you need to answer. Yes. yes. And then you get better and you know the answer. Yeah. Well, actually, to, to backtrack on that a little bit, so when we emigrated, to, I was brought up in Africa. Mm -hmm. My father worked for British East Africa. My dad made educational films for the British government. They were often films about hygiene, you know. You see these flies in your toilet, don't, don't you know, wash your hands and don't put your food near the toilet and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and so he was Irish and he decided to uh, avail himself of the free passage. They had a free passage in the 60s to New Zealand and got very excited about it. And we saw films about New Zealand and the f beautiful fresh opportunities there mm -hmm. and so on. So we ended up emigrating there. And the, um, I and my two brothers walked down this road when we were staying in a motel and we saw this beautiful tree in, a, in the garden. It's called a Pahutakawa tree, covered with red flowers. This is at Christmas time in New Zealand. And we went back to, our, and it was for sale. We went back to our parents and we said to our father, we found where we have to be. And mm. so my dad and mum came down the road and they looked at it and it had three acres of land and my father always liked the idea of something a bit wild in the background and he had some money that he'd been given as a kind of golden handshake when he left the, the government. He was in Tanzania the last year of our time there. So he said, okay, we'll buy it. So that's how we came to be there. That's how we came to be then connected to this doctor. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I came to go to secondary school, to high school, a particular school, because it was public school. So I went to this high school and because I'd had this rather academic um, style of education in Kenya. Um, it was a private school. People sent their kids, mm -hmm. you know, government people sent their kids to these schools. I'd done Latin and French, and so I did a sort of entrance exam at the high school, a placement exam, and they put me up a grade. So I, instead of going in the third form, because it's third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and upper sixth, okay. they jumped me up to the fourth grade. And there I met a, a boy came up to me a few days later, he had a shock of orange hair, and he introduced himself to me, and he said, oh, um, I heard you jumped up, and where are you from? And I said, I'm from Africa. He said, oh, I'm from Malaysia. My parents worked in Malaysia. They're Dutch. And uh, I said, oh, did you go to school in Malaysia? He said, no, no, I was sent to a school in England. I wish I was still there. He said, we had such fun. He said, um, we used to do painting. We did eurythmy. We did all of these things, and, and, I, and I didn't know what that meant even. But it sounded like he'd been to this wonderful school that he couldn't forget. And this was a, you know, everything else was a bit of an anticlimax compared to that experience. So his mother knew, of course, a lot about, that was a Waldorf school, and his mother knew a lot about it. And he brought me around. His mother tended to sort of vet his friends. Well, not vet them, but, but you know, meet them and, and tell him if she thought they were a nice nice lad or not mm -hmm. <laughs> and so she apparently liked me and um, she was the one that sort of fed me the original ideas about Steiner and I got a book she ga actually gave it to my mother and it was called Scientist of the Invisible mm -hmm. and it's by an English um, Anglican bishop who wrote this book about Steiner 
and she gave it to my mother when I was in Vanuatu, and my mother didn't want to read it. My mother was a regular Anglican Christian, but a very devoted person. I, I admired her that every, every morning she would have this quiet time where she would read the Bible. As a, a good person, my mum. Um, but anyway, uh, she didn't want to read this Steiner book, so she put it in a packet and mailed it to me in Vanuatu. So I was in Vanuatu reading all sorts of things. Like a, a big influence on me was Algis Huxley's book called Perennial Philosophy, which he I looks at all the different mm -hmm. religions. And I, I was reading, one. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was reading that. Uh, a friend it? of mine gifted that to me within the last year. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and so um, then this book by Steiner comes along, and I'm in this little hut, bamboo hut with a tin roof and the the fruit bats, the flying foxes are screaming and making a racket at night up in the tree above my house and <laughs> coconuts occasionally <laughs> dropping on the roof with a big bang. Um, and I'm just, you know, these just bamboo, woven bamboo walls, very porous, so I'm just feeling like I'm camping the whole year, really, but with all these noises that you get in the tropics and the downpour of the rain and the... Um, you could hear the sea in the distance because it was just up above the bay there. Um, and reading Steiner in that environment. So that had a very deep effect on me. But I wasn't only reading Steiner, I was reading like Algis Huxley. And um, I was, uh, I'd been, I was telling you earlier, I was interest, influenced by Colin Wilson, who'd written this book, The Outsider, mm -hmm. about people that didn't fit into society mm -hmm. <laughs> and who wanted something better than just measuring out their lives and coffee spoons. Was that the amphibian story? Yeah, that was, you know, he likened. Um, likened these outsiders, people like Nijinsky and William Blake and um, Lawrence of Arabia and characters out of some of the novels um, as people who were like the first amphibian sticking their head above the water. They couldn't keep it up for very long. Mm -hmm. They were breathing a different air, but they knew that this is where they had to go and they were struggling to find this world. And he, in his idea they're kind of prototypes of what needs to come later that human beings need to breathe this different air mm. to be able to function on a higher level as well as being practical as well as living in the everyday life so that's where Steiner fitted in for me because he seemed to be someone who had found a way to connect to bridge the spiritual world with the practical world uh, in a way that almost nobody else that I know of has been able to do. Yeah, so this is Rudolf Steiner. Rudolf Steiner, yeah. And he founded Waldorf Education. Yep. He also, I mean... That came late in his life, actually. It okay. came after, after the, at the end of the First World War. And he'd been writing and lecturing and espousing all sorts of ideas ever since the turn of the century. So this was at least 19 years into his intellectual and public speaking life. But you look at what he came up with and things he created. I mean, yeah. it's Waldorf education, mm -hmm. which is th thriving now. Yeah. Um, there's the, um, well, anthroposophical society. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> right? Yeah. And then. And, and by the way, the anthroposophical society uh, is a fairly loose organization of the only. Uh, criterion for membership is that you have a feeling that uh, it's valuable to think about 
the spiritual world, its relationship to the everyday world, and uh, the weaving together mm -hmm. of the world of thoughts and higher ideals with our practical life. And Steiner said, if, if you're open to that, then you can be a member of the Anthroposophical Society. Okay. So there's no secret pathway or anything like that. Right, because it tends to um, have that sort of... It's a mouthful, though, isn't it? It is. It's a mouthful. Yeah. I, c I can't even say it. And then biodynamic farming, which is... Biodynamic farming, um, and then anthroposophical medicine. And there are many practicing doctors all over the world now that have taken that training. It's, a, it's an addition. Okay. It's an enrichment. And in fact, um, when I was in my first Waldorf school in England, in Canterbury, um, one of the parents was a physiologist working for the University of London, and he wrote an interesting article for a, a magazine related to Waldorf education where he said, really, Waldorf education, which is private in most parts of the world, although Germany, for example, pays 90% of the fees, Okay. And, of course, there are Waldorf charter schools now, and especially on the West Coast in California. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that, that really it's a, um, an approach that people might want who can't find it in the ordinary world. So if you liken it to medicine, you've got regular medicine, and, and often that's um, corrective healing, you know, fixing things, but not really... I mean, a, an example of that is um, there was a talk given by an anthroposophical doctor um, talking about pathogenesis and salutogenesis. Kay. So she said, you know, pathogenesis is working with pathology, working with illness, which most doctors, that's their job, to s check if you're healthy, um, and if there's anything wrong, that's what they, then they get to work, mm -hmm. right? But she said salutogenesis and salus, I think, goes back to meaning of wellness or wholeness, mm -hmm. that the medical world, this could be an evolution to move towards what makes a person healthy. Mm -hmm. Let's work towards that. Not just wait till you're sick and then we'll start get to work. Let's already be at work keeping you healthy. And I think actually the whole medical world is moving that way now. I mean, I think, for instance, the um, what I've read, the economic model is more effective that if you keep people healthy, mm -hmm. then they're not going to, you know, go to the emergency room if they exercise. And th there's a lot of that now, isn't there? Exercise right, eat right. Um, I, I read things in the paper and in other areas where there are suggestions about just stay healthy. Yeah, go figure. If you, yes. eat, if you <laughs> eat healthy yeah. and you exercise, yeah. you actually might not be as You might not need a doctor. Sick. Yeah. As you are right now. So, so doctors could be yeah. almost like, you know, you go to the gym and you have these trainers who go, this is what you need to do to get fit. Yes. Well, the doctor could be, this is what you need to do to be healthy. Right. And I'm going to give you every leg up I can to keep you healthy. Yeah, it's a shift toward wellness. Yes, a shift towards is, wellness. Than it is yes. to, to treating symptoms. Yes. Yeah. So that um, salutogenesis... But that, that would be a different, you, you know, for many years, people have had to go to alternative medicine. Right. Or what there's some in England, they call it complementary medicine. Mm -hmm. So it's a complement to people can't find what they need, so they go somewhere else. And that's what he was saying. He said, Waldorf education is like complementary medicine it, mm. or alternative medicine. It's something that people might feel, I, I can't get what I need in the, in the regular world. Uh, I'll have to go there, but I'll have to pay for it, unfortunately. Right. But it was never Steiner's intention that 
uh, there should be any kind of um, discrimination or vetting or filtering of people that couldn't afford. And so right. many Waldorf schools, or if not most, try to have a financial aid thing. Mm -hmm. But I, I think other private schools do that. Um, but the ideal would be if the state would recognize it or if there were a voucher system right. where people could just go, well, I'll take that school it, rather than that school. I'd rather, I mean, in England, there's all sorts of different private um, approaches, which I studied when I, I also went to state teacher training mm -hmm. after, after Emerson, actually. And How was that? Um, Is it, like, <laughs> it was better organized because they had the infrastructure and, and more teachers. And so my, my practicums were more carefully supervised than they were at Emerson. Okay. Because Emerson, they didn't have the manpower to go following you up to the classroom to see what, how you were actually doing it. Um, but of course, they, they just didn't, I, d I didn't feel, I felt it was very dry, their understanding of the human being. You know, it would be scattershot. You know, let's learn about Piaget, let's learn about Bruno, let's, uh, let's learn, uh, you know, you would be given a bunch of different theorists mm -hmm. and then you had to join the dots yourself. But then when you got into the state schools, which I did, I taught in a public school in England for three years, um, then it came down to uh, political and economic forces of what you required, because actually in my, th my third year, which was came later in my career, uh, the national curriculum was coming in, which was Margaret Thatcher's idea. Mm. And it's, I think, similar in spirit to No Child Left Behind, mm. in that it was a massive intrusion by the state, well-meaning, you know, to try to make sure that kids all had the right ingredients. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, when I went on holiday to England when I was a boy, my grandmother lived right across from a school um, which was called Secondary Modern. And Britain had this awful system where you sat an exam um, at 11 years old, which was fifth grade. Uh, so imagine, River, your son having to sit this at the end of his next year. Mm -hmm. And at that, if you did well, you went to what was called, quote, grammar school, which okay. is an academic stream and would send you off to university or college. Or if you didn't do well, you'd go to the secondary modern which was a technical school where you did metalwork and hmm. woodwork and all of these things, and you would be already filtered off down that side, that, that stream to, mm -hmm. to go towards, pra nothing wrong with practical life, but it was just a terrible thing that, that at the age of 11, your yeah, destiny was predetermined. Systems making the yeah. choice for you. So then they brought in, in England, comprehensive education. Okay. And that was to overcome that, although Strangely enough, in the county that I worked in, in Kent, where my first Waldorf school, I don't know if they still do it, but for many years afterwards, they still did this, what was called the 11 plus exam, where the kids were already predetermined, mm -hmm. even after the government had, you know, changed and gone to a comprehensive education. So at least that was a recognition, and I think that's probably a recognition all over the world now that every child has the right to have a variety of subjects to be exposed to, mm -hmm. academic, um, physical, sports, uh, aesthetic subjects, practical things, making things with their hands, that, that we all need to do that. But I think even then, different education systems prioritize and work 
work with those areas in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's some unique things to Waldorf education that I found very exciting to be with and I've greatly enjoyed working with. So most of my teaching, you know, right back to your question at the beginning, I yeah. basically taught most of my life except, I mean, once I got going, uh, which was the age of 28 after I finished my trainings. Um, and then I went, I did two years, then I went and did a master's at London University, okay. philosophy of education. Hmm. And then I did these first Waldorf years from, I did fourth grade through eighth grade. And then I um, had a grant to go and do a doctorate, so I went to London again to do my doctorate. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I did two years, and I ran out of money because I had a two-year grant. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty hard to do it in three years, but I did manage. But I, I needed to earn money and finish my doctorate, so I, I took another job in a state school, mm -hmm. thinking it would be easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this very oppositional director who questioned everything I did because oh. now I had this Waldorf slant to things. <laughs> Why are you teaching William Blake? That's not suitable for the children. And Mr. Preston, what about science? And I said, yes, I am teaching. I'm teaching, this was equivalent of a fourth grade. So I was teaching animal studies, which, you know, River's just done in yep. the fourth grade. So I said, that, I'm doing some zoology. Ah, oh, yes, Mr. Preston, but what about the Thames barrier? <laughs> <laughs> So I said, oh, you mean physics? Yes, yes, physics. You've got to do some physics with the children. So I said, okay. And actually, I then ended up bringing the sixth grade Waldorf curriculum into the fourth grade. Okay. Which was, uh, I'm probably the only Waldorf teacher ever done that because it <laughs> would be, you know, not, not considered appropriate to start messing with what we do in the different grades. Mm -hmm. And um, But what I found was it was such a living approach, such a phenomenological approach to the phenomena that they study, which is acoustics is one of the things, hmm. um, that the kids at fourth grade just lapped it up, but they just didn't have the questions. That was where the difference was. Okay. They, they weren't there in their thinking yet, which confirms for me another thing is that uh, one of the big things that Steiner wanted to synchronize with in Waldorf education was that the children's consciousness changes each year. Mm -hmm. And Piaget recognized that in a more theoretical way. But Steiner was able to, uh, many people compare Piaget and Steiner because Piaget talks about how we eventually come to conceptual thinking hmm. and that our thinking is Im uh, imagistic. It's, it's pictorial thinking at an earlier age and then mm -hmm. it transforms. Um, but Steiner was able to um, seat that in terms of stories and culture and civilization and history in such a way that it just you you progress through culture for example or progress through science in such a way that it really harmonized with the stages the children are going through the and developmental I, stages. the developmental stages and that's what made it that's what i think for many many teachers we found so um uh, you know when you do something that you feel is working mm -hmm. uh, where the kids are happy doing it then you sort of feel, oh, I'm on a roll here. I've, I'm, mm -hmm. You know, I'm doing something. It's sort of almost like if you, I've taught recorders and I've taught ukulele in Hawaii. When you get a tune that everybody likes, yeah, you get, you choose some duds. You know, nobody seems to really like it. You get a tune everybody likes. Everything warms up. Everything starts mm -hmm. rolling. That's the experience of Waldorf education. It's like, you know, in first grade we tell fairy tales, 
mostly Grimm's fairy tales, but it can be other fairy tales. And the children are in that world, mm -hmm. and they just it catches fire. And, um, and yeah, because it maps up with their development, yes, it, maps it maps up, up with their consciousness, it maps yes. up with their energy, it yep. Ma yep. maps up with their curiosity. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like being a, a good DJ at a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that's like, but have you done that? <laughs> no, I haven't. But, you know, they'll they'll try out a song and they'll try to get people to get out of their seats and yes. get out of the dance floor. Yes. And the first yes. song, you know, yeah. a good DJ will get everybody out there on the first song. Yes. And we'll keep it going. Right. Keep the party rolling. But so that, that has to do with, uh, I'm sure that's an experience on a DJ's part is, is to read the the, the mood of the, the group right because it may not be the same song for yeah every yeah it'll be wedding. a different yeah. different song for a different group so so tell me give me like an overview of Waldorf as you would to somebody who is curious about the education because I want to I want to yeah. I want to map Waldorf to current culture mm -hmm. and I want you to help us paint a picture of the relevance for an education like this. And we've talked a little bit about your your journey to mm -hmm. to finding it. And I'm really curious yeah. to hear more about your synchronicities <laughs> uh, um, because I think those are, are real. And I think that Waldorf education actually creates, helps to um, give openness to a, a child in a way that would be open to something like that happening in their life and, and viewing life as, as something that's much richer yeah. than um, than everything that's just right in front of you. Right. You know, I, if I sit in the, uh, I go and have my hair cut. <laughs> yeah. One thing I love about America is that um, United States, which I've now been in since I was 40, so that's 28 years. <laughs> um, I, I love the openness of people you know if you go to England it's still you'll start talking about Waldorf education and they'll say um, well do you have a cricket pitch <laughs> and you go no we don't have a cricket pitch oh <laughs> and you can hear in that tone of voice that you're obviously not up to the level of many of the British schools especially the private schools but even you know that they've got a cricket pitch uh -huh. you know it would be like an american saying well do you have a baseball right. pitch and you go no they go oh <laughs> that's mm. it you know i'm not interested but i find you know if i'm sitting having my hair cut they'll ask you know what do you do and, yes. and until very recently i'd say i'm i'm a teacher i'm oh where and i'd tell them and then they'd say, well, what's it all about? So I, I think my first answer, because, you know, one could get technical and one could get detailed and philosophical, but you're trying to put it in a nutshell, is to say that it's, uh, as many Waldorf teachers would say, it's an education for the whole child. So it really is meeting intellectual mm -hmm. inquisitiveness on the level that children have. It's meeting their heart in terms of the social life of the class and also in terms of their feeling life through painting, through handwork, through singing, through recorders, through drama, um, and through socialization that occurs in the playground and the classroom. And then, you know, meets their need for physical activity through playing in the playground. Play is recognized as something very important, not a waste of time. And of course, many modern people are realizing that now. 
and through constructing things, there's there's a strong thread that runs all the way through Waldorf education from modeling in the first grade with beeswax or other materials, uh, knitting, um, drawing, cutting out, um, constructing, and all of that goes all the way through the school. Um, of course, when they get to fifth or sixth grade, they actually do woodwork, um, mm -hmm. so they're actually then using tools, having to figure out how to um, plan what they're going to make. Um, and the whole musical thing, the skills develop. So there's a wealth of things that the children experience and, and the teachers necessarily um, have to learn to do themselves that I would say um, really is on the model of the Renaissance human being. You know, when we talk about Leonardo da Vinci in the seventh grade, that's when we talk about the Renaissance. Okay. Um, I think, you know, you, you, you look at the children, and I don't remember any child actually, say, young person saying that to me, but I think there's a silent knowledge that when you say, well, Leonardo did painting, but he was interested in anatomy, he did drawings, he was interested in the rocks, he was interested in water, he was interested mm -hmm. in nature, he, um, he played the, the lute very well. Um, he did all sorts of things, he invented things, right. that as you tell all of this, you can, you're checking boxes that the kids have done similar things in their education, mm -hmm. and they're really seeing that. Um, I remember when I did a course on Shakespeare, just to talk about the Renaissance, man um, somebody came to talk from one of the universities about Shakespeare and said in the Elizabethan age um, there was a model of what it was to be a full person and this model was that you were a, a scholar a courtier and a soldier and then he elaborated so the scholar obviously would know um, lots of factual information but mm -hmm. would be, perhaps be able to write poetry um, would uh, perhaps know as much about the modern exploration that was going on in his age mm -hmm. and anyway all of the things that belong in scholarship the courtier would be not merely throwing down your coat for the queen to step on as Walter Raleigh did but that you could play the lute that you could dance you knew how to do your courtly dances mm -hmm. that you were a gentleman that you were a person of good manners and of um I'm trying to think, um, um, self-control, um, there's another word for that, but modesty and self-control, and that uh, then, so that was the courtier, and then the soldier, you should be able to ride a horse, you should be able to go to battle if needed, or, but anyway, you were a master of your physical body, hmm. that you were fit, you were active, so this threefold picture, courtier, a uh, scholar, courtier, soldier, is, fits in with the, um, Waldorf model, which we always hear about, thinking, feeling, and willing. Mm -hmm. And when I went to state college, they, of course, used words that made it all seem boring, like cognitive, affective, and psychomotor. <laughs> but it was basically <laughs> thinking, feeling, and willing. But, um, and, um, you know, that's what happens all the way through Waldorf education. We're always addressing those three, though, of course, it moves more and more towards the level of thinking realm as mm -hmm. they go up further up into the school but we never leave behind all of the other things it's it's in line with um the theme of the emerging future podcast yes which uh -huh. is 
um, curious, compassionate, and courageous. Ah, thinking, right. yes. feeling, thinking, willing. Feeling, but I exactly. never made the connection yes. with Waldorf. See, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I often find these days, if I'm trying to understand a situation, I'll often just use that template mm -hmm. and go, to what degree does this uh, affect us on our thinking level? Mm -hmm. To what degree does it affect our feeling? And to what degree does it uh, demand an answer or affect us on the practical level? And that template turns out to be, um, you know, you often find one part hasn't been thought of. Mm -hmm. um, right, and, and yeah. can inform the context. Um, did, I don't know if you saw this recently, but Leonardo da Vinci's journal was translated and released uh, out on the, the web recently. Really? Yeah, yeah so, with so, his writing switched around so we could read it. But this, exactly. <laughs> and, and some of it didn't even make sense at all. Yeah, yeah. But it, um, he had things written in there like, um, draw Milan. Draw Milan. Draw yeah. Milan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a big subject. You know, and that it was, was a bit smaller in those days, one, probably. But <laughs> One thing on his to-do list, you know, but then it yeah. was meet with, you know, s somebody who um, was an expert at understanding what's inside of the wall ah. and how the pipes work. Yes. You know, and yeah, learning yeah, that. Yeah, 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 so he yeah. was extremely curious, yes. and then he would write these things down right, that he, right, he, right. he would just want to learn. But yeah, then yeah. he would actually go out and actually attempt to do these things. Yes, yeah. So that's where the courage comes in. Yeah. You know, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to have the self-will to, to actually take action and mm -hmm. follow through on my curiosities. Right. And then learn along the way yeah. and build that capacity. Right. I mean, he was famously, didn't finish off a lot of things because he was mm -hmm. so curious I can relate to that. <laughs> he just he just you know he would learn about the wall but then something else would come up right. and Ooh. he'd have to go do that too <laughs> so um but the yeah the students they learn about Leonardo but I mean again um interestingly I've just been I do some teacher training in the summer I go up to Vancouver um to um Vancouver Island mm -hmm. there's a, a Waldorf teacher training there and I was just teaching the history of the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade that we do, and um, so when we look at the Renaissance, you know, three of the most important figures are Michelangelo, Raphael, and Leonardo, mm -hmm. and they fall quite well without, you know, uh, pigeonholing them too much into thinking, feeling, and willing. You know, Leonardo was a great, you know, as much a scientist as a, as an artist because he was interested in human anatomy, interested in physics, interested in cannonballs and walls and boats and helicopters and all those things that he did. Yep. And even designing the modern bicycle now, they say, because mm. the first bicycle was a penny farthing, which was a huge big wheel with a little wheel and direct drive on the wheels, right. like, like a little child's pedal mm -hmm. bicycle. And it took our culture, our civilization, I don't know how many years, maybe 20, 30, or I don't know what the time span, to come up with an equal-sized wheels mm -hmm. and with a chain drive. Wow. That, that when you pedaled, you didn't have to pedal the actual wheel. Mm -hmm. And Leonardo's drawing has all of that. So he leapfrogged into the future mm -hmm. ahead of everybody. So it's an extraordinary mind. But Michelangelo was the great sculptor who lived until he was about 90, mm -hmm. and he was, you know, chipping away at marble and doing these extraordinary huge things like the Statue of David. And then he was asked to paint the Sistine Chapel, 
and lie on his back for years painting these murals on these these um, um, I'm trying to think of the word um, painting into plaster there's mm. a word for it I've just forgotten there um, it'll come frescoes frescoes all over there um, and so I, I you know you can really see that although he was an artist he was a man of extraordinary will huge willpower that he could do all of these great huge projects and bring them to completion completely and then you've got Raphael this extraordinary beauty and he lived a very short life it's quite similar to Mozart he just did Mozart was brought up by his Mozart's father was a musician and Raphael's father was a painter mm -hmm. and they both lived at Raphael I think died when he was 33 and Mozart died when he was 35 and their their aesthetic just flowed out of them as though God had given them a full mm. bottle and so tip that out you know just do that and Raphael is so it, it, even there you know you can see this modeling going on in front of the in front of you with these great artists mm -hmm. of different aspects of our human consciousness right and so the Waldorf philosophy and it trains the student or develops the student in a way to ultimately have the capacity to express themselves in the most unique essence that they would yeah. bring forth in the world. Yeah, and when we, you know, that whole question is, uh, there's a philosopher that I've read, Alistair McIntyre, and it's called After Virtue, his book, and it was very popular in the late 80s, early 90s. And in it, he starts off saying that there's a great danger that modern Western people are simply emotive individualists. They, um, they, they just believe in what floats their boat, so to say. Hmm. And if they think differently tomorrow, they'll move the goalposts. Mm -hmm. And that he goes back in history to Greek times and says, in the Greek times, there were the great virtues. You had to hold yourself to be courageous, hmm. hold yourself to be loyal, hold yourself to have these virtues. And these virtues um, followed right up through Roman times. They were similar. Um, in Christian times, in the Middle Ages, those virtues were there, but they added charity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could be a knight, but if you came upon someone who needed your help, you'd have to stop and mm -hmm. put them on your horse, so to speak. Um, but then he, he says, when we get up past, he says Jane Austen is one of the last people where society has these kind of values that, that people have to hold themselves. Then, then it all disappears because then the great age of individuality comes. Mm -hmm. But then the individuals can be, um, and it's not to decry individualism, but, but is there a structure, is there, a, is there some guidance that's inside of the individual that gives some, um, some um, deeper um, deeper sense of direction, deeper guidance than just how you feel today and how mm -hmm. you feel tomorrow. And that was his big question. And so w w back to what you were saying about the, um, how the education helps the expression. I would say it's, it's a dual thing because the children are receiving all kinds of experiences. But those experiences have a discipline in them. Take, for example, the knitting. You know, you don't just have a ball of wool and run around with it like a kitten might. <laughs> You've got to turn that wool by methodical knitting. Uh, there's a, there are 
you know, there are practices or rules about knitting, which mm -hmm. I've tried to do it once and not very well. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm so full of admiration. These little first graders are already knitting. Mm -hmm. And you can see each child. Some children knit very tightly, some knit more loosely, some drop a stitch here or there. And then, but there's, there's a, a discipline in that. So let's say they're carving a wooden spoon in the fifth or sixth grade. There's a discipline, and if you put your chisel in the, or your gouge in the wrong way against the grain, you can, with one stroke, knock off one edge of your spoon mm -hmm. just because you hit it the wrong way. So you've got to know, you've got to harmonize with the natural world or the world of, let's say you're a musician. Well, there's a discipline about covering the correct hole at the correct moment on, right. your, on your recorder. So I think that the students in Waldorf School, and I would say in any successful form of education, are learning skills and learning to accommodate to the environment. Um, you know, if you were a gardener, you'd have to learn about the different plants and what, where this plant needs to be in more sun and that needs to be in less sun. So the self-expression in Waldorf education, I would say, is a, a fruit of the child's own unique personality, which has room to grow. And some children will be more like Leonardo and some be more like Raphael and <laughs> so on. Um, they'll all be unique and they'll all have their own interests. But at the same time, they'll all have kind of gone on a path of experiencing the world with, you know, perhaps there's another word for discipline because I know it sometimes has a negative connotation. Well, no, Self-discipline. Practice. Consistent practice. Um, attention to detail. Mm -hmm. And we were talking before about quality. Mm -hmm. I was mentioning Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and how Robert Persig eventually saw that the romantic world and the practical world came together in quality. So I imagine even a painting, you've got to get the right paper, the right materials, clean your brush, have clean water, you can't have dirty water. Mm -hmm. and you know, bring all of those skills together and then you get this hopefully beautiful painting at the end of it. So I think that uh, one of the big things though I think um, that modern education often misses and I came to this through my, uh, when I was at London University doing my phenomenology, I, was, I, I did my doctorate studying um, a French phenomenologist called Merleau-Ponty who talks about the natural connection to nature, that the primacy of perception. He says we're born in the physical body, we're, we're thrown into the world of senses mm -hmm. and that's our launching pad for life. We might become abstract people later in life but we're, we're never abstract when we're children. Mm -hmm. We're really out there in the world. Um, so uh, one of the experiences that I or one of the concepts I was able to make clear to myself that um, Merleau-Ponty and other phenomenolog phenomenologists know about is that not all perception is active. That's to say, often, you know, when you're in state education, they will use this, coin this term, um, that inquiry-based knowledge uh, and nothing wrong with that, but but it's as if to say every child is a kind of Sherlock Holmes and they're all busily solving mm -hmm. the problem <laughs> mm -hmm. and they're out there with their magnifying glasses right. searching for the clues, right? Uh -huh. And 
somebody like Molo Ponti, and I think this connects with spiritual practice, not everything we do is like Sherlock Holmes. We need time to sit on a tree branch and just let the sounds of nature flow into us, to hear the wind, to let things come, not to feel like everything's a kind of investigation. Because mm -hmm. as long as there's an investigation, it means you've got a preordained idea of what right. you're going to do. There's no space for anything to teach you in a certain way. Um, and so that, and, and so what um, Merleau-Ponty, his beautiful expression was there's action, that's the Sherlock Holmes, and there's passion. Mm. Passion is, you know, in that classical sense, you know, they talk of Christ's passion, but meaning the suffering, the acceptance of your destiny or mm. of whatever happens. But there's passion as we sit on the deck and we hear the crow just, I heard the crow just then, where something flows into your heart, flows into your consciousness, because you opened yourself to it. And I think that Waldorf education has, uh, many Waldorf teachers wouldn't necessarily have that concept, but they're working with it all the time, that there's passion all the time, there's sense, I mean, you tell a fairy tale, and often as you tell the t tale, you get carried away with the story yourself, as I've done many times, J just to take, for example, the first great experience. But quite often, after the tale comes to its conclusion, there's a silence, and something's taking place for all of you. you you're kind of, oh, you know, the end of the story, and something's sinking in. And I've experienced that many times in music making. Mm -hmm. You're singing a a beautiful song and you, perhaps you got to the point where your class can harmonize and you're singing something with beautiful harmony and you there's an arc in the song and you come to the end of the song and the sound is still resonating around you mm -hmm. and it's as though your soul is drinking in something that's been created in that space so that that passion I think is a really important ingredient that isn't thought about in most educational contexts because I think they're still caught up with this whole, um, you know, Piaget would talk of this constructive aspect of consciousness that we gradually progress from our pictorial world, mm -hmm. our, our psychomotor world where we're crawling around investigating things. But there's always this investigative consciousness. Right. And but yet there are other forms of education, not just Waldorf, that do that are aware and I think any kind of religious or spiritual aspect of education would really know about this passion this this sense of reception mm -hmm. so even the teaching of physics it can't be just well we got an experiment today so let's do the experiment there's an important part where you're watching the phenomena um, one of the examples is in the sixth grade we do acoustics and there's a point where we um, take a cladney plate mm -hmm. which is just a brass plate that's mounted carefully mounted in the center and we pour salt on it or sand more often salt and bow it with a um, violin bow mm -hmm. and the salt jumps but when you get a tone because if you you bow it you don't bow it very well it'll just make a, a you know it'll just mm -hmm. just like a regular vibration but if you 
can bow it in the correct place, you get a tone emerging. And as soon as the tone emerges, all the salt jumps into beautiful patterns, you know, much like ripples in the sand or ripples mm -hmm. in there. And different tones will instantly make a new pattern. Mm -hmm. And the children are just, wow. They're looking at that. And it's, it's a beautiful, astonishing thing where um, the, the, the acoustic experience of a tone mm -hmm. is pictured right in front of you right. with a pattern. It's actually called cymatics, C-Y-M-A-T-I-C-S, cymatics. You can look on YouTube, and mm -hmm. there's various scientific laboratories that, that have machines that do it and everything. Okay. <laughs> and they're quite amazing. And people can do it with smoke even in a, in a tube and put sound into it, and the smoke will start to go in different shapes. Very cool. So, But you were doing it with... Um, we're doing it with this Cladney plate. It's a brass plate on a stand, rather like this microphone stand. Okay. And then you tip the salt on the brass plate, mm -hmm. and you steady it with your finger, and then you decide to maybe bow it right in the middle mm -hmm. of one edge. You can do it on any edge. Mm -hmm. And once you get the tone, then you can take your finger away and, and bow it up and down. And the things, all the sand, the salt will jump into these extraordinary patterns. But that's a moment of wonder. Right. And, and I think perhaps, you know, any educational system would love it if their kids had multiple moments of wonder, <laughs> if you could bring it about. Right. But what is wonder? You know, isn't wonder um, an opening of the heart, a sense of something greater, something beautiful, something very meaningful that pours into you? Mm -hmm. So, I'm reading this book. Um, uh, it talks about music and what the brain is doing mm. while the, while you're listening to music. So there's all these new scientific yes. studies out there. Yeah. And um, what was really curious to me was that the the brain lit up in many different sections during the silences ah. because there was anticipation wow. of what's going to come next. Yeah. So it was, um, and then they talked to composers, and, and the composers, uh, master composers, were saying that they intentionally create the silence yes. in the music because it right, creates right. the anticipation Interesting. Yeah, what's next. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but now they study the brain and the, the yeah. brain's going, I, I, I think I know what's coming. I hope, I hope I'm going to hear a certain note or you yeah. know, a certain... What about at the end of the piece of music? Do they see anything that there's a kind of um, concluding experience in the brain? They, they weren't specific to the yes. end. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they did talk about like a sigh of satisfaction. Resolution. Yes. <laughs> the brain is satisfied. Yes, that there were, <laughs> there, there were um, chord structures and things that would allow people to be satisfied. Um, yeah. You, you know, because there's that break, and then is it going yeah, to yeah. resolve? Yes. Down? Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and if it doesn't, then yeah, it it leaves uh, the person with an emotion that is completely different if than if they would have heard that note that they yeah, were expecting. Yeah. 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 Well, interestingly, um, well, this, uh, I brought that up in our meetings. Uh, this uh, one day, I was in Hawaii uh, and, and listening to NPR after school, driving back home, and somebody was interviewing this particular scientist, a man named Frank Wilson, and I just turned on the radio, and it said, "Ah, so you're saying." Uh, the, the interviewer was speaking. So you're saying, Dr. Wilson, that students that have, for example, um, rebuilt their father's engine 
have a better chance of getting into Harvard than students who haven't done that. And he said, exactly. And then I thought, oh, that's interesting, because uh -huh. that, that sort of sounds like Waldorf education. Uh -huh. And then it, he unpacked that, and then I, I listened, and then I ended up getting his book about the hand. So basically, um, what he was saying was that people who've used their, their mind, their brain, in practical ways end up creating a much more plastic and um, a flexible brain or, or consciousness because they've been able to physically work with their hands, they can visualize things, they can rotate things in their mind's eye mm -hmm. because they've done it multiple mm -hmm. times. Right. They can see whether a screw is the right size in their mind. Mm -hmm. um, that plasticity, that flexibility, that innovative quality of thinking, when Harvard, just for example, has you know 100 candidates and they've got 20 places, mm -hmm. what other filters can they use? They've all got you know, the highest SAT or whatever it is they have to yeah. have, what else can they use? So he said that they're now realizing that students that are practical as well are even a cut above, you know, they, they've, they've met the academic criteria and now they've, they've got some other higher criteria or additional criteria. So I got very interested and I read his book and in fact, um, Years later, he was asked to give a lecture to a group of Waldorf teachers, and maybe it was other educators, and it, it's called The Real Meaning of Hands-On Education. Hmm. And basically in that, he says how important the hand has been in evolution. He says, in fact, perhaps um, thinking in pictures came about first through the use of the hands, that in ancient times, human beings would have to make tools mm -hmm. to survive, or even, as we know, do cave paintings, um, and that use of that practical use of the hands led to the ability to communicate, mm. to use gestures, to have speech, to have. And so he sees that the the refinement of the hand, the use of the hand um, over millennia, has led to the c intellectual capacities we have today. But also in the individual child, the individual child needs to use their hands mm -hmm. to fire the brain. And, and, of course, a lot of people are worried because if they're just only hitting little keys with their fingers, they're not using their hands in a very robust way. Um, but he has another point in that, and I think that's a really interesting one. He's, he said that there's, a, um, there's an effective aspect to the use of the hands. Um, so one day he had a conference where he had a whole lot of really... Um, skilled people. He had surgeons, he had pianists, he had artists, he had all sorts of people. And he was showing slides talking about his his research. And at some point he showed a couple of pictures of um, somebody who'd injured their hands. The chicken <laughs> wants to join in. <laughs> There's some creativity because I think she's laying an egg. I think she's laying an egg. <laughs> Good timing. Does she have a name? <laughs> yes, uh, Princess Peach. Princess Peach. <laughs> well, get done with it already. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. But anyway, um, a couple of the people fainted in the orchestra. Okay. I mean, in the, in the audience, sorry. And he went afterwards, he thought about it, and then he, he developed a bit further. He realized that when people use their hands to a very great extent, let's say you're a motor mechanic mm -hmm. or you're a surgeon or you're a pianist, 
your very sense of yourself is defined by that. Mm -hmm. You start to identify yourself, and I don't mean in a in a egotistical or, or conscious way necessarily, mm -hmm. but you are invested in that. That's yeah. who you are. You're this artisan, or you're this. That's how you're effective in the world. You kind of begin to realize that you have a place in the world, and this right. is what you can do. So I I realized that in fact this is what happens in Waldorf education all the way through. The kids are the children are every time they paint successfully or paint, which you know there isn't really unsuccess, but every time they paint they're happy with their painting, mm -hmm. or knit their socks or make their spoon or whatever. They're taking another step forward in realizing themselves and having a robust sense of themselves you know coming back to the threefold human being mm -hmm. they're not thinking in those terms but they have as it were grown a little bit more and they, mm -hmm. they kind of oh I can do that I can do that and I've told I met you you might remember in one parent evening I told example of my son he went through to high school in Waldorf school in England and then he joined me in Hawaii when I moved to Hawaii and he went through architectural school he, he's trained as an architect hmm. um, but on, on his way to doing that he had a, a Honda Civic that he greatly prided as often 20 year olds do you know he's polishing it every day and all of that mm -hmm. sort of thing anyway one day it got dinged by somebody and uh, he didn't have the money to take it to the uh, panel beaters you know to the body shop <laughs> so he he got a book about it out of the library and then he saw that he needed to buy a couple of rubber mallets or whatever you buy for mm -hmm. panel beating he taught himself and then he fixed it himself and it looked just like it had been in a panel shop he just applied great patience to it and did it mm -hmm. and I I thought well that's an, a great example also we had not any kind of computer education in those days, now they do in Steiner high schools. They have some keyboarding and some mm -hmm. mathematics of um, programming, so they understand what's behind the programming. Um, but in those days, they didn't, because you know that was back in the uh, trying to think now eighties <laughs> when he was at high school, um, and um, he just taught himself to use the computer really quickly. Within a few months, he was doing AutoCAD and um, he did uh, designed a website for somebody mm -hmm. so he, he picked himself up on that really fast and so I'm, I'm thinking you know Waldorf education gives students and I think you may have heard this and uh, certainly Waldorf teachers have often heard it that one of the great assets of Waldorf students is they feel they can do anything if they turn their mind to it if they're interested mm -hmm. and it's not that they are out to prove they can do anything it's just that they feel well, you know, I, if I want to go that way, I could go that way. Mm -hmm. Because they've, they've been on stage, they've done a play every year, they've played musical instruments, they've made things with their hands, they've studied things, they've painted, they've drawn. It, they've, they've done so many things that they just feel life's an open invitation mm -hmm. in many directions. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, and I also think that it's a... Um, it's a nice segue into talking about technology yeah and the, mm. the difference between using your hands and now uh, a, a workforce that well right now Seattle is booming right yes. booming in IT yeah. right yeah and 
and that th- you don't use your hands yep. in, in that way. It's, yes. it's very much um, up in the head. Right. Um, but going back to what you're saying about uh, your son learning the software and learning the computer yes. as needed, yep. that's also the, the same experience that I'm hearing from families that have gone through eighth grade and then sent their kids mm-hmm. to other uh, high school. Yep. Right. Um, you know, maybe it's a public high school or whatever it is where mm-hmm. the first day they hand them a laptop and, yeah, yeah. and they say, well, you're, you're going to get your homework via this device. Yes, yeah. And there was some concern that, okay, well, Waldorf didn't prepare the student for this. Yeah. Within the first few days, they've got yeah. they've got it figured out. Yes. And <laughs> the user interface is built for, you know, people to, at a young age, to figure this out. Yes. And, and that's yeah. not something that um, is going to prohibit them from yeah. uh, participating yeah. in yeah. In technology yeah um, but anyway uh, the technology is is definitely and media and screens are yeah, so would, pervasive yes I would like to talk about that okay we're back we have our coffees refilled and we're gonna segue into technology and screen time so yeah um, at, when you think about the hand and mm-hmm. you think about everything that you just described and mm-hmm. um, creating an education yes. that includes working with our hands and how that that um, that transfers to the way that we think mm-hmm. about things and mm-hmm. conceptualize things mm-hmm. in our adult, adult life. Yeah. Now, we're living in a culture where screens are everywhere. Ubiquitous, yeah. And and a lot of our communication is done through those screens. A lot of the work is done behind screens. And it's really, you know, changing and shifting our culture. I mean, I, I teach soccer, mm-hmm. or I have been a soccer coach in the last couple of years for my kids. And I can tell what kids have been spending too much time be- behind the screen because they're just not in tune with those motor skills as much. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on how you see technology playing into the education and um yeah, yes where we're so going. Uh, well i mean first of all i think waldorf education it's a bit of a no-brainer to to know that uh, tech you know that for instance a few years ago i think bill gates was espousing the idea that every classroom every child should have a screen and that would be the great wonderful emancipator and you know even in African countries, you know, they should all have a little laptop and they should be able to access knowledge that way. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, of course, that's better than having nothing to, 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 and and there is an amazing world of knowledge, you know, presuming you can filter and bypass all the awful stuff that's out there in the internet. But um, I think for Waldorf, it's a no-brainer that that is not going to be the uh, the 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 gate you know the the royal road to knowledge mm-hmm. through the screen that actually the royal road to knowledge is through the whole human body mm-hmm. and Steiner always said the greatest teaching method or the the most important thing is the human being that the the teacher stands in front of the children as a human being and uh, communicates and shares experience and of course not just talking but you know being the 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 knitting teacher or mm-hmm. the violin teacher but that it's a human face, it's a human being that's talking to you, that's educating you. And um, of course that's, 
you know, low tech, mm -hmm. inexpensive. And so therefore, I think Waldorf education has caught fire in many developing countries. China's very, very interested in it now, and it's gone to Africa. It's all over the world, really. Mm -hmm. India, there's Indian Waldorf schools. But the, the question really is, uh, the screen and laptops and, and smartphones and all of that are so ubiquitous these days. Culture is changing. People, are, as you said, people are turning more and more to that. And so it's almost as though, imagine if we were merging from the Industrial Revolution into the age of steam. The steam engine was starting to be everywhere, intruding into our lives. And I remember reading a passage in D.H. Lawrence, Sons and Lovers, I think, where um, the, the farmers, uh, and you know, Lawrence was a great lover of nature and of the, nat quote, natural life, how the steam engines roared through the countryside there were these iron, ra well, of course, we know what happened in American history when mm -hmm. the railway system was put across the plains and the buffalo were shot and the Indians were moved aside and there was a certain um, aggression and destructive quality to all of that. And yet the age of steam brought mass transportation and increase of travel and commerce and all sorts of things. So uh, looking back in history, uh, perhaps... We, we shouldn't be Luddites and say there never should have been the age of steam. And mm. As a boy, I grew up in the age of the aeroplane. I mean, um, uh, I mean tourist planes because um, we in Africa we flew from, we were in Uganda in my f earliest years and my father working for the British government would be sent home given a break to go back to England where the relatives, your relatives usually were. And um, every 18 months, we went for three months in England, and okay. we were given a free flight. So as a boy, deep impression on me, the first plane I remember, I was probably about five or something, um, and it was called an Argonaut, and it was a four-engine four propeller plane. And we took off from Entebbe, and then we hopped to Khartoum, and we came down the steps, which you always used to do. There weren't these tubes like there are now, mm -hmm. whatever they're called, <laughs> you know, those walkways. And we would, you would immediately smell the atmosphere, you know, the heat of Khartoum and come in the swishing fans above your head and the um, waiters that were long white gowns and they had big headdresses on their, you know, white, sort of like a turban, but with a, I don't know the proper name, but with a, a sort of white part hanging down from them and they'd be carrying drinks and food for the people in the restaurants. And then we'd fly from there, from Khartoum to Cairo so we'd be in Egypt, and my father would say, don't drink the water, you must have Coca-Cola or something, you can't drink the water. And I'd go, great, no problem, we'll have Coca-Cola. <laughs> and then we took off and flew to Rome, uh -huh. and I remember being given cherries to eat and getting very sick as the plane then took off and flew over the Alps, and my father said, there's the Alps, boys, there's the Alps. And of course, in these air propeller planes, they were quite low mm -hmm. compared, they were 19,000 feet or something. And they, you know, we were only a few thousand feet above the Alps, and the plane was bucking and rocking because of the updrafts and uh -huh. things. <laughs> and, and then we would land in London finally. And wow. that was the propeller age, and that carried on right until the early 60s when, well, the British Airways had these plane, jet plane called the Comet, which crashed because they didn't understand about pressurization properly, mm. what was needed in the way of the windows. And then they got that right, and then the Boeings came in. Mm. And so in the, I would say in the 60s, the age of 
jet flight began and then people started traveling all over the world and that of course has had an enormous effect when you look back and see how because you know prior to that people went on ships mm -hmm. and so when they came to Hawaii or they went anywhere they'd sail on this slow big giant ships and take their time and get off the ports um, and then suddenly people are doing this whole thing in you know 12 hours or whatever it is mm -hmm. and nowadays you know we can just suddenly be in Hong Kong or suddenly be in Korea or wherever mm -hmm. we're going um, and that's an astonishing experience Absolutely. and you you know people people are in the business world who do that regularly I, d I, I don't know how they are, you know adjusting to time zones adjusting to smells to cultures to food to so many things and yet strangely you know when you see photos of airports they're generic you know they have these airport lounges and these glass <laughs> stores with selling perfumes from France all <laughs> over the world or whatever um, so we've entered a different age that's just one example for me I've just seen that change from you know the, the propeller plane that made a, a difference even sound you know when you're in a jet plane there's just a dull roar going on all the right. time when you're in a propeller plane there's a pulse I can remember sitting as a boy and hearing this sort of vroom 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 yeah. vroom there's a kind of rhythm that the propellers develop as they're flying through the sky um, and, the and you're flying amongst the clouds so the clouds are very real often you're going through clouds right and um, I remember when I was my first flight I said to my mother mom I can't see the angels where are they <laughs> I was looking out amongst the clouds it is pretty incredible to be up there yeah in, in an airplane well in the there, sky. That, there's an example of um, so coming back to Merleau Ponty who's got this concept of the primacy of perception mm-hmm that we're thrown into the world, you know, there's a sort of technical sense of thrown, but we're, we, we, we find ourselves embodied in the human body, just as all of nature, you know, lions and chickens, everybody finds themselves suddenly, you know, they're born and they're in this world. And the, they, they have the sense world all around them, including sense of their own body. And, you know, the Waldorf schools talk about the sensory awareness and development of the senses. And then as we grow up we develop an inner life an internal life of thinking and Im images and that's very important but to what extent does that cognitive life that intellectual or spiritual life keep a, um, a, a flow between your sensory life and your abstract life and somehow or other the the age of of screens is a new form of travel in a certain certain way. You know, you have the steam travel and you have the the international plane travel, and now you can travel virtually mm -hmm. with a screen. You know, you can you can go from here to London or to see what's going on in another part of the world, or you can do, you can do um, Google Earth and fly above different countries that you could never fly above. It's amazing, um, and it's it's an extraordinary enhancement it's extraordinary power just like you know in the old days when they went on the carts and then suddenly they could get on a, and when I teach about the age of the industrial revolution in the eighth grade because they have the revolutions in that age how they were terrified by this thing that was going 12 miles an hour <laughs> down the railway and somebody got run over and uh, in some ceremony you know and it was like shocking 
and this monster came down with belching smoke out of its chimney and mm -hmm. clanking and banging at this great speed of 12 miles an hour or 15 miles an hour. And everybody was horrified because carts moved much more slowly and people sat in carts and greeted their neighbors and suddenly they're sitting inside this machine with windows mm -hmm. isolated and now we know with cars that's even, even more the case. Mm -hmm. um, and then the aeroplane, we're in this tube and, or space trap, not many of us have had that, but um, and now we can magically, we can look in the screen and we can mm -hmm. go into a story, we can go into music, we can go here. It's an incredible power. But what I would say is um, one of the philosophers I've studied is, uh, some people may know of him, Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein was probably one of the most um, innovative and inspirational philosophers of the 20th century. And um, he came up with a concept of, of forms of life, meaning that as, as a culture has a form of life, that's to say, let's say you're an agrarian culture. Mm -hmm. your, your form of life has to do with the seasons, to do with your work, that you've got land, that you um, are aware of how things have to be planted at a certain time of year, and then another time of year you harvest them. And your network of connections has to do with helping each other, selling things, communicating with each other, all of, all of that. And the form of life influences your culture. It influences the things you hold dear, the things you believe in. In ancient, when I've taught astronomy in the sixth grade, I've often called it cultural astronomy, because Steiner said it should be earth-based astronomy in the sixth grade. Seventh grade, we look at the universe as though we're floating in space, but okay. he said don't do that in the sixth grade. They should be looking at the moons above them, the suns above them. You're not above the moon or the sun, because mm. that's not your natural experience. And um, you know, um, ancient astronomy was very connected to your form of life. You know, the Egyptians would talk about Sirius, the dog star, the inundation when the, 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 the Nile would flood and that would have a big effect on their land. It would go over, carry the silt into their farms and that would be the great sort of springtime when, when their land would be watered properly and everything could grow. And so there were understandings of of their practical life connected to the stars, connected to the change in nature. All of that would be a complex form of life. I mean, that's just an example. And th you can see then, if you look at the Industrial Revolution, the form of life starts to change. People are not anchored on the land. You know, people all came into the cities. That was the whole change from agrarian life to technological life, people mm -hmm. coming into the cities to get jobs. And Dickens writes about all of the uh, terrible side effects when people are crowded and they're poor and all of that sort of thing. And now, um, you know, fast forward to now, people can hop on a plane and fly to a different part of the world, as I've done. You know, I've had a Africa, New Zealand, England, Hawaii, <laughs> Seattle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually, one of the things I have to say is if, if somebody to ask me, where would you like your ashes to be? I don't know. I'm in a <laughs> quandary. <laughs> should they be in the sea in Hawaii or should they be in Seattle or should they be where my father grew up in Ireland or what? Oh, no. You don't know. But, I mean, that's a little bit typical of a modern person is, like, mm -hmm. there are people that grow up in one place and stay in one place. And in some ways, I sort of envy them that they are totally 
anchored, but in another way, part of our age is to be these universal people going everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm saying all of that in relation to the screen because the screen is this new form of transportation. But I think you never, uh, uh, well, I know my philosophy professor said a very simple, but I, I, I think about it often, wise thing to me once. Um, and I don't know what brought this up, but he said, a lot of us, when we're younger, we have fairy tale thinking in that we think there's only, uh, if we could only think of the right thing to do, then everything would fall into place, you know, like the sort of perfect Rubik's cube solution. But he said, real life isn't like that. When you follow a path, <coughs> you'll get some things and you'll lose some things. You never win everything. Mm. Any choice you make will be winning some things and giving up some other things. So here we are with the screens. We're winning some things. But I think we have to be very aware of what we might be giving up. Or maybe not if we're wise. You see, if we, uh, So I would say a Waldorf parent might say... Um, I don't want to deprive my child of screen time. Uh, I mean, we wouldn't think it right for young children, you know, first, second, third, fourth, possibly even fifth grade. But certainly when they come into puberty, it would be hard for them to feel um, that they're, they're weird and every other child has these things and they don't. So the parent would have to find a way to let them... Um, go into virtual travel mode mm-hmm. <laughs> and experience these things but have to find a way to um, s- so you would you would gain that but you wouldn't give up you would know how rich the, the prime primary world is mm-hmm. and you would want them to have their physical activity to play their violin to have their friends to play soccer to do all of these things so that they because if you imagine our form of life could become so so ro- robotic in the end if we if somebody was only on their screen all the time mm-hmm. not getting any exercise not socializing not listening to well they, you know they could say well i listen to music on the screen that's not the same as you know putting a violin under your chin or having a guitar next to you and feeling the vibration of the guitar right against your chest mm-hmm. as you're playing it cooking, uh, the smells of cooking, making something for other people that's a gift to other people. I mean, what are you giving to them if you're doing stuff on a screen? Mm-hmm. Maybe you can do some website or something eventually, but you're not being able to make something with your hands that you can give to somebody. So that's one thought. And then I have a, a deeper thought than that that I'm struggling to... Uh, um, I'm, I think I might try and write about that someday out of this idea of the primacy of perception that Merleau-Ponty had, and, you know, many of what he says harmonizes with Steiner, so um, that's why I've kind of found it interesting. Um, He says the primary world is is our real world. We're born into that. And so for us, the sun does rise, and the moon does rise, and the moon does change, the moon does set. Right, now we know from astronomy, once we the students in seventh grade, they learn about the great astronomers, Copernicus and Kepler and Tycho Brahe and Newton and so on, um, Galileo. Um, and they begin to see that 
the sun's in the center and we're circling around and you know Kepler found out it was an ellipse we're going in an ellipse around the sun and that brought in the whole idea of gravity and so you have all of this physical theory that is mathematically correct and I've taught about Kepler in particular he was a very honest thinker and he tried to see the orbits he did want to have he did did follow on Copernicus that the sun's in the middle and he wanted to see the the orbits as, as um, circular, and he took the platonic solids as his image, that if you nest the platonic solids, then the, the sphere, the imaginary sphere, you drew, the bubble you drew around each of them would be the orbit of a different planet. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful theory, but it didn't work. It mathematically didn't quite work. It was close, but it didn't work. And he was so honest that he eventually, with lots of figures that he got from Tika Brahe, he was able to work out that the orbit of Mars was actually a, an ellipse. Mm. And then he had to understand why it's an ellipse, and he worked that out. So that was a remarkable feat of intellectual honesty, going by the facts. And so that's something highly admirable, and it's good for teenagers to learn about that. But at the same time, what I wrestle with is that the real world we live in, the chickens wake up in the morning, the rooster cries, the sun rises, we're, we're, we're um, as Steiner would say, we're incarnated on the earth, we're in our body, and the primary world, the primacy of perception, as Melopondi says, is the human world. And now we've got the virtual world where we can go into Google Earth and fly above the earth we can go out to space, we can do all of these things. How do we balance that theoretical and virtual world with the primary world? And is, is what's needed, and this is the question I have, is what's needed a kind of limitation? Um, you know, if you're watering the garden, you just don't water it endlessly. Mm -hmm. You know that too much water is a bad thing. And I could imagine there's virtually anything we do where too little is not good enough and too much is not good enough is not right so we we are probably we don't eat too much our whole life involves instinctive or even conscious limitations where we create a boundary mm -hmm. so what i'm wondering is there a, a primacy boundary is there a boundary of primary experience that we have to keep that if we don't, it's ecolo it's psychologically, ecologically, spiritually harmful to us, just as overeating would be, or undereating, or anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm thinking about a lot. And you know, of course, in the advance of science, it's always been <coughs> that there should be no limitation. And I'm not. I'm, I mean, I'm not trying to say science itself should stop, or we shouldn't have space travel, or. But I think. It's an ethical, psychological, spiritual question to, to a legitimate question to ask, should there be boundaries to our experience, healthy boundaries? I mean, we say, for example, when you're raising a child, I don't want my child to visit um, harmful websites. You're making a boundary for them. I want my child to go to bed on a certain time of night. Uh, I want my child to eat healthy food, as healthy as I can mm -hmm. get for them. 
you're doing all of that, but then you become an adult and you, you can throw those things out of the window, perhaps. But as a culture, uh, one of the comments Wittgenstein made that I find very interesting, he, he died about 1953, but he wrote in about 1950, looking ahead, he said, the history of our of the 20th century, and, it, and by that he meant the Western world, will be very interesting because by the end of the 20th century we'll know if our civilization had a culture. Isn't that interesting? There's mm. a contrast between civilization and culture. Right. So we have a civilization, no doubt, you know, and, and here we are in Seattle with Bill Gates and Amazon and Boeing and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, this confluence, the air the flight of planes and the flight of the virtual world right. both in the same place yes. here. Very fascinating. Um, but that's a civilization. But the culture which Wittgenstein spoke of as the form of life and all that's associated with it, have we made a proper culture or is it, is it a fragmentary culture because people can't quite put all these things together properly yet? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an ecological movement and people know how the environment should be handled. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot about that, although, you know, our current direction sadly didn't go with the Paris Accord, but I think individual states are still carrying on wisely. We know a lot about good, healthy food and, and many other things that, that are, I would say we've reached a good point of understanding. Mm -hmm. But have we, have we reached a, a place where we can put artificial intelligence and screens and all that's moving because I, I would say this is the new form of transportation mm -hmm. do we know how how far that should go in terms of our healthy everyday life I mean they talk about screen time don't they mm -hmm. they say no more than X hours <laughs> but that, that, that's got to do with how you divvy out your day mm -hmm. but that's you you can always do that as a parent but uh, but we can't be parents of our own culture but but if you could take something like that standpoint to say what's healthy for our culture um to to what extent should we be a bunch of people walking around and looking at our screens all the time mm -hmm. and tapping our cell phones i mean i was the other yesterday i was going down to home depot and there was a a girl, a young woman behind me, and you know, if you stopped at the lights and you look in your mirror, you can see sometimes their heads are down, and I go, uh oh, right. she's probably uh, texting someone. You know she is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, well, pretty sure. And then, and then the lights turn green, and off I go, and I looked in my mirror, and there she was stuck, yep. and everybody was stuck behind her, and mm -hmm. it wasn't until I was 50 yards away that she finally looked up and moved on. That's mm -hmm. antisocial. It's not being a, 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 con, a at least a um, what would you call it a, a considerate driver you're holding everybody up because mm -hmm. you're doing that so there are social aspects to this that, that impact people mm -hmm. there's you know like nowadays when you go to a movie there's always a big thing about Turn you know, it switch, switch it off don't don't spoil the movie for other people mm -hmm. we're having there there's little fences being put up here and there I mean just this new law coming in that the cops are going to stop people who seem to be right. texting <laughs> but but it doesn't it need a bigger understand not that we could legislate that but a, 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 dip, a 
deeper understanding that we could somehow um, create healthy boundaries for is boundary the best word i don't know if there's, you could come up with yeah, a well word. you're you're exploring the, the, per the parameters edges, right the edges where, yes. where is the edge and, yeah. and where is it healthy and it's probably not a, a line right there's no, a spectrum a of yeah, it spectrum, and yeah. especially when people you know you're a graphic designer so mm -hmm. you're going to be on your computer all day long that's right yeah so, that's true so that person's making their living and most most people are now making their living behind a screen yeah um, but it's it's way out of balance right mm. now because then we, we we get off the screen and then we pull out the screen in our pocket yeah and then we're off to the next screen thing so it's like screen land and I think right now we're in this phase where it's 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 infiltrated our culture to the point where um, we are m more often than not living our lives with with the screen in front of us and now everybody everybody sort of feels that that there there is um a healthy there should be mm. it's like it's talked about a little bit yes um you know uh, even like the american academy of pediatrics will say mm. don't put yeah. a screen in front of your yes. kid until right. three or something yeah. like that yeah. um so it's it's sort of out there but it's so pervasive and it's so rapidly changing that i think it it's um you can't you can't you can't get a hold of it right now yeah and and we're still i think in so much change that um it, it's hard to make any sense of it because if you make yeah. sense of one thing there's another dynamic that, yeah, that that's something else that comes in but um i i agree with you we, you 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 experience things you're simply driving now hmm. and now now a screen is interfering with people just noticing that the green light yeah went in front of them yeah i mean and and i'm not blaming because i do the same thing mm. you know and we tell our kids to we, we need to have healthy boundaries for our kids but even for us as adults we can't even handle it yes you know it's like yeah, uh yeah. frodo in the ring mm. you know our we, he can't keep his hand out of the pocket right i'm gonna pull it out my precious you know mm. and, and I, i'm just waiting for that moment but now they're doing all the studies about how that affects your brain you're getting a little dopamine hit if you get a little like you know on your instagram somebody likes your facebook post and it makes you feel good so now there's there's also it's affecting our bodies yes and it's becoming a, a, addictive yeah um but where i'm at with it is how we're not going to put them down mm. <laughs> so how do how do we incorporate a way to use them as tools to bring us back to some experience where we are experiencing the real senses um and i think that it's there's got to be some sort of overlap there um, because right now I feel like there's two camps yeah you know it's eliminated altogether and um, experience the natural world yeah. and, and this yeah. is real yeah and this is the only way you're gonna learn and well that's mm. not entirely yeah. true yeah. And, and then there's screen time so um, I think the question that you're asking is, is absolutely relevant mm. and it's probably if if I were to predict, it's it's changing all yeah. the time, and yeah. there are so many dynamics. So there's not it's not like a right or wrong answer yes. that's going to come yeah. out of it. Yeah. But yeah. It, yeah. but really, what is it doing? And and I've landed with culture too. Mm. Like this is a cultural thing, because you can, where like um, like what domain are we in? 
and what domain are you asking the question in? Because there are very particular things about mm. screens in school and education. There's uh, screens in uh, transportation, screens in um, entertainment. Yeah, you know, when, when you mentioned the, I was just thinking back, said the cultural thing, because um, what Wittgenstein meant was that everything that has developed in a culture of course, maybe he's still using an older model, but the architecture, the music, the uh, the writers, um, there are many qualitative aspects of everyday life, aesthetic aspects, you might say, that are woven into the way of life. So um, let's go back to Athens. They have this agora, this big meeting place where the philosophers and various people mm -hmm come to buy their goods and to meet each other and have their discussions and then flow back to um, so there would you know people would design outdoor like the Greeks had outdoor theaters or in Shakespeare's time theater came to London the Globe Theater there were places where people could gather it's only a small part of life but basically places get built um, that that meet this um, web of cultural needs and yet on the other hand um, and that's sort of slow growing in ancient times. Mm -hmm. And then I was mentioning this this book called Thank You for Being Late where he talks about the age of acceleration mm -hmm. where things are starting to move more and more. You know, artificial intelligence is doubling in power mm. with these new computer chips and so on. So things are, are moving very rapidly. But if you think back to the analogy of the, the steam train and mm -hmm. then of the airplane, those things were such great innovations and brought such power that they they weren't woven into culture in a slow incremental way they kind of almost um railroaded the culture or they I see <laughs> sorry but they <laughs> nice. they they they, yeah. they just um drove right in a sort of wedge into culture uh -huh. and shaped the culture then people had to kind of incorporate that and and move up to another level or off to another mm -hmm. level and you know think about the age of jet planes and they i believe they are great contributors to um to carbon emissions up yes, in the sky absolutely. huge and yet imagine a world without planes and you know that, that would be a very difficult world where mm -hmm. we couldn't so some of these things are they not only uh, meet a need initially, you know, to move faster on the road, and so you invent the first car, mm -hmm. and then cars get better and better, and you build the roads for the cars, mm -hmm. and the Germans built the autobahn so they could go at 100 miles an hour, <laughs> right? In <laughs> Germany, there's, there's no speed limits in Germany, <laughs> so you build really good roads so that they could speed very fast. Yep. So um, innovation and technical innovation sometimes grows out of a need like Steve Jobs saw that we needed this very um, intuitive way of accessing these things on, on his Apple computers and they became very popular um, but then the technical innovation starts to have its own dynamic like artificial intelligence does yeah. or even robotics do is where the robots are going to keep going and going and going mm -hmm. And then you had, I heard on NPR, Stephen Hawking's a couple of years ago saying, you know, it could mean the end of civilization if we don't put boundaries to artificial intelligence, to 
where it's right. going, computing power. So, um, as, as you were saying earlier, you know, there are different niches of culture and the, the big cultural shifts that are taking, I don't suppose we're even conscious of them. We mm -hmm. don't kind of know till later on and look back and go, oh, that's where we were going. Right. So, yeah, and, and it is. It's the it's the new steam engine. Yeah. That we have, and yes. it's changing, and we know it's changing. We're aware of that. Yeah. Because the big monster of, with steam hmm. entered the room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And so we know it's changing, but we don't we don't know the fact the effects because like, it's a it's an, an, a great innovation, right? Yeah. And so is technology. Right mm -hmm. now, it's a it's it's the great innovation, and especially the internet. Of our time oh. it connects the the globe yeah but what we don't see clearly now are the side effects yeah and is is that kind of what you're exploring with when you speak about boundaries are you trying to get a pulse on what are going to be the side effects before um yeah bef be before we well one example so let's say um it's a just a great thing that you see somebody in some remote village in africa can uh, even send money through the internet so they don't have to walk 10 miles to the nearest bank or something mm -hmm. and then they can you know they can watch their favorite sports game going on in some other part of the world you know watch their representative running in the Olympics or something mm -hmm. um, you know that's an amazing power that they have but to what extent would, would we want the world to all end up, um, cultures to end up being so generic that it's a bit like airports? Mm -hmm. Airport, airport is that a, a, a symbol of <laughs> where we're all, we all end up looking the same as each other? Right. Would, it, would we stop having our own individual music? Would there be this? Uh, I remember um, uh, when I was at Teachers College, I had a very good English lecturer. And I had this record of, it was called African Sanctus, and I forget the name, oh, David Fanshawe, and he was an early music, music eth ethnographer, or whatever it's called, ethnologist, and he went through from Cairo all the way down to East Africa, picking up dance and music and mm -hmm. recording it, but then he wove it together into this piece of music called African Sanctus, where he put in traditional church music and blended it with African dance music and so on. And... Um, I, I lent him the record and he gave it back and he said, well, it's very interesting, but I'd rather just listen to the original dances and the original music. Because mm. this guy's created this sort of, you know, like a milkshake. He'd right. thrown in everything and shaken it up and served me this bland milkshake. <laughs> but, you know, world music can often you hear um, people crossovers. And, mm -hmm. you know, for say, Paul Simon was somebody in my 60s right. day who's taken South American music first of all and then he went to South Africa and mm -hmm. did his very interesting music but more and more there are these crossovers that can be really interesting that people combine these things but d one feels a little bit sad if if a, a you know a tribe were to lose its song and dance for mm -hmm. example yeah, you you lose a little bit of your cultural identity. Yeah. Because um, on the one hand, you you have, especially with the internet, you, you have the ability to access so much more music. 
Yes. So you you, so that's new that you you can be introduced to yeah. music from anywhere on yes. the globe, and that's yeah. new and that's revolutionary. Right. But at the same time, what is the music that of your people? Yeah. And well, having lived in Hawaii, for example, so now that I listen to Hawaiian music here, it's different mm. than when I listened to it in Hawaii. Because when I listened to it in Hawaii, it arose out of the conditions, out of the sea, the waves coming in, of the, um, the palm trees swaying, the flowers everywhere, the, the climate, the temperature, the, uh, the sense of this great ocean that, that fed the people. And so the music grew out of that and is rooted in that. Mm. And um, it has a different feeling when you're there. And I used to wear these Aloha shirts all the time, and I would never have worn them in England. And I don't wear them anymore here. <laughs> but when I was in Hawaii, it was it fitted because mm -hmm. you feel it's a hot climate, and maybe people in Florida do the same or the Caribbean. You just feel the climate and the smells and the temperature takes you onto the periphery of yourself, mm -hmm. and you're sort of out there in nature. And then you come to a colder climate, you kind of shrink back inside of your clothing, keep warm, <laughs> except mm -hmm. in very warm times. So I know that the local conditions influence culture and um, to some extent or maybe to a considerable extent there's something beautiful about that um, there's a, a writer that I've read in Kenya um, Cookie Goldman um, I think it's called I Dreamt of Africa or something like that um, um, n not, not Karen Blixen a different writer that was later than her. Karen Blixen wrote Out of Africa. Okay. And there was a movie made of that. Yeah. But later Robert on, Redford. Yeah. Cookie Goldman, um, I think it's called I Dreamt of Africa, and she settled in Kenya up on the escarpment of the Rifali. Her husband was killed in a car accident. She thought about leaving but decided to stay, and she had a son and a daughter. Then the son got really interested in snakes. And she said, please, for God's sake, don't have poisonous ones. But he said, Mom, I know what I'm doing. And then he finished high school, and he was due to go to Princeton or Harvard. He was, uh, you know, just a graduate. And before he got there, he staggered into the kitchen. And he said, Mom, I've been bitten by my black mamba, which, I mean, black mambas are the most deadly snakes in Africa. And they couldn't get him to hospital. He was right out in the country. So then again, she thought I have to leave Africa's not my place but she had a girl that had grown up um, meantime by the way she'd devoted this land they had um, black rhinos on their land and so they made it into a rhino preserve and that was what they converted the land to sort of in honor of her husband and then her son died and she decided to stay and then the daughter grew up um, almost as a Kikuyu or whatever the tribe was that's right near to them. And um, I think more Maasai probably. But anyway, the daughter then went to Oxford and when she came back, she became a kind of um, chief person to perpetuate the dance and song of the local Kenya tribe that was around where they lived. Mm -hmm. And to this very day, she still does that. Wow. So the mother had ended up being this nature-preserving land, and the daughter ended up being this cultural pres preservation 
Wow. And mother and daughter are still there. I just saw some pictures of them on the internet, <laughs> which is handy to see. <laughs> but the daughter preserves the dance and music because she felt that, you know, it's in danger of dying away mm -hmm. and keeping it alive. And I know that things can be resurrected. I mean, Hawaiian was forbidden by the missionaries and nearly died out. Mm -hmm. And then there was a renaissance of Hawaiian language, mm -hmm. and it began to be taught in many places, and now it's strong again. Um, so um, there was a boy in our Waldorf school. His parents lived in Waimanalo, which is quite close, and there was a local school there, and they were kind of culturally active parents and they said well we love Waldorf but we want our son to learn Hawaiian mm -hmm. so they pulled him out in fourth or fifth grade and he went off to the school and I saw him years later I said did you do you speak Hawaiian I said yes wow. <laughs> he, he did which is great mm -hmm. it's wonderful and then you know the Hawaiians rediscovered their navigation right that voyaging canoe the Hokulea yeah I so saw Moana yeah, oh, <laughs> no, Moana is a no, cheap knockoff. Yeah, no, no. You know what? It yeah. was actually really well done. Yeah, I, well, I let's go see it. Actually, yeah. I, I recommend it. Um, mm. I, I didn't expect much, and then yeah, and then I was like, wow, yeah, they, they, yeah. they did a really good job yeah. with this, and the music's beautiful. Yeah. I don't know how. But but so those are two examples yeah. that I've just come to mind. Well, three: the, the the Kenya one, and then the Hawaiian ones, where people can. You know, you could say it's drawing a boundary in the sense that they see something bleeding away vanishing mm -hmm. and they go we can't let this vanishing happen mm -hmm. we have to pull it back we have to reinvigorate it and so the hawaiian language came back right and it's strong now it's taught in the university it's in kamehameha schools mm -hmm. it's in many many state schools they teach Hawaiian. I, I think i remember the irish did that with the irish music okay that they instituted fiddle and irish dance throughout ireland southern ireland anyway mm -hmm. and um because they saw that could just end up being a few recording bands mm -hmm. and a few old guys still playing in the pub. And they wanted young, young kids to be forming bands and dancing. So I think we can save and, and um, reinvigorate things. Right. So uh, back to the very first question, I think Waldorf education, um, I seem to remember Steiner said somewhere that... Waldorf education could could be a, a contributor to um, healing or saving culture, hmm. and um, I certainly think you know um, there's a couple of girls that were in one of, in my class in Hawaii, and one of them did the drawings for the recorder book that I did, and they came to visit me <coughs> in January, and I'm still talking to that sh the first drawing she did in eighth grade, and now she's doing. Mm -hmm. Now she she went through art college and she's manager of a store in Waikiki, but she's doing the drawings for me in her spare time. Mm -hmm. And they came to visit, and we had lunch on the deck here. And, and I just afterwards I thought they're, they're now twenty five or twenty six, and I thought, you know, there's something so. Um, it's not brassy. It's not um, high octane Harvard type success, but there's something else about them and I've you know met some of the former Waldorf students they seem like um, a well-tuned instrument as though they could be picked up you know they could play there's, there's something um, flexible open and well when I say I use the, the, the analogy of an instrument because it's resonant it can mm -hmm. resonate 
you know you can play and if it's well made it'll and uh, well I like playing musical instrument but there's something um, responsive about it mm -hmm. and I would say that th these two girls are just an example uh, my sons are a world of well uh, my daughter's in England but there's something um, in their education that causes them to be flexible and responsive mm -hmm. um, and that's and open-hearted and that's that's a nice quality yeah I, I really like that metaphor of the instrument yeah as a human I recently read something about um, understanding human development of using the metaphor of an instrument and mm. you could uh, play a string and you and you might you might be a one note mm -hmm. in, instrument but uh, once As some African instruments are are they yeah well they they can stop them differently when you add different size strings you get different notes yes. and if you relate that to the human experience it's mm. the different te tensions that we've experienced or we've uh, been able to work ourselves through that mm -hmm. develop uh, a wider a range of musical yeah. notes to where we can actually play a chord. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Huh. There are so many other questions that <laughs> I would love to ask you, <laughs> yes. and I, I got to a few of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, River was said, "Don't leave before you hear this. See the Queen." story when you were a kid where, where you saw the queen oh and, that one and he yes also, and he also said he also said you got to ask him about red nose and brush top oh, well those were the characters that were in our stories well, that's the book that i hope to write is that what you're working on well i'm working on this recorder book right now okay so when that's done that's my next step so i did these two ukulele books yeah. in january now i'm working on the recorder book mm -hmm. and that took a lot actually talking about synchronicity here was another thing so um, I contacted the world of publications about redoing the recorder book. It's a, it's a book um, of three-part recorder music, and it's called Music for Recorders Around the World. Mm -hmm. So it's got music from Russia, from Africa, from Japan, from British Isles, all over the place. And they're, they're things that I've arranged over the years and put together. But the first book didn't have a CD, and many teachers bought that book but they said I can't really play the piano to hear the harmonies I don't mm -hmm. know what it really sounds like I wish we had a CD so you know cut up to the present I got back in touch with um, the world of publications and said I'd like to do redo this book and have a CD they said go ahead yeah but that's a good idea well then um, there are a couple of people at Brightwater who can play reasonable recorder um, Sky is one of them and Hiromi's another and I voiced this idea to them. I said, yeah, yeah, we would be interested, but you know, we've got to find time in the holidays. And, and then I realized that they can play reasonably well, but not well enough to be able to sit in a studio and go boom, 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 you know, through the 44 tunes in that book. So then I was stuck and I talked to the, the Waldorf people and they said, well, we want it to be crisp. We want it, to, it's got to be a decent quality. Mm -hmm. So then I go, well, I don't know anybody. So I went online one day and I looked up the Seattle Recorder Society. And that I thought, oh, well, you know, and there was somebody called Vicki Berkman who, and um, 
um, and another gentleman who helped us, Charles, I've just forgotten his surname, um, who um, I wrote to Vicky, there's an email, and I said, Vicky, this is my situation, I'm trying to redo this book and record this book. And she wrote back very responsibly, she said, oh, that's a great idea. I've got these two students, One of they both just graduated, one of them's going to Brown University, the other one is going to Belgium, and I've had them since they were six years old, private lessons, playing recorder, and they're both young women now, one's going to Belgium, one's going to Brown, but there's a window of time in June before they head off to trips and things and g they're gone when we could get together and I'll come and play too and Charles will come as well and they recommended the Jack Straw studio connected to University of Washington and it just everything fell into place and I got the bookings and we rehearsed at Vicky's house one day I got all the music for them folders and it went really very nicely and then we ended they gave me three different days Saturday Sunday Monday one um, 11 till 1 each day or whatever it, yeah it was 3 11, anyway it was 10 to 1 it was 3 hours a day so we did 9 hours of recording but it's just like I, I reached out and this especially Vicky Buckman mm -hmm. she just connected with the whole idea and her students were just exactly ready <laughs> they were they're going to leave you know one's going to be at Brown wherever that is is it in it's on the East Coast. East Coast, and the other one's going to be in Belgium. Mm -hmm. But they were not yet gone, and I just brought this request at this key moment, and she was, and it happened, and I, I've got beautiful recordings, because and Charles, bless him, he was a very particular guy about the, about various bits of music, and he said you you can't have a repeat sign here, and you need to <laughs> do this, and I I, 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 and I followed his instructions. Right. And he even fixed some of the pieces for me, you know, right. musically to make sure they were correctly done. Mm -hmm. So altogether, it was just an amazing thing. And I, I just, well, there's a lovely saying, um, Herman Hess, I don't know if you've ever read Herman Hess, Siddhartha. No. Um, the hippies loved him. He was um, a Swiss writer, um, and his many of his books were in the 30s and 40s, 50s. But in one of his books, there's a quote there that I've always thought about in life, and he says, um, it's a letter that's in the book writing to this person who's going to step out of this community and go into new things in life. And he says, in, um, be, be, be courageous in all new beginnings are secret powers for guarding us and helping us. In all new beginnings are secret powers for guarding us and helping us. And that's... You know, in my life, I mean, when I left New Zealand, I went to Australia to get money to go to England. I hitchhiked across Australia from Sydney to Perth. Whoa. I didn't didn't have any. I had about thirty bucks in my That's pocket. A long way. Yeah, I, I got a lift with a guy, an old interesting guy who gave me a lift all the way across the Nullarbor Plains. Told me, regaled me with all sorts of weird <laughs> stories about Australia, and he had a very stiff neck. And he said, "Yeah, I got a stiff neck, mate." He said, I was diving off the pier in Queensland and broke my neck. And I go, oh, really? Yeah, that's bad. And he says, yeah, I recovered. He said, well, my neck was so stiff, I took up ballroom dancing and I, got, I won many prizes. <laughs> 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 and we got to Perth and he, he said, 
I can take your bag in my car for the day while you look for a job and we'll meet again at the end of the day. And, you know, I trusted him and uh, he went off and he came back. And I, I didn't have a job so quickly, but he came back and we shook hands and said goodbye. And I thanked him, you know, for his kindness. And I said, what sort of job have you got? And he said, oh, great, I've got two jobs. And I go, what's that? He says, well, I'm driving a truck in the daytime and I'm teaching ballroom dancing in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> that was so wonderful. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So anyway, I got a job in um, as a geological exploration team, oh, as wow. a field assistant near Kalgoorlie, and that was so lucky. I mean, um, the um, you know these little synchronicities where yeah. I didn't know where I was going to go that night, and at that point, you know, my mum going, "Why do you have to do this? Why do you have to leave? Don't forget, you can come home if you don't succeed." And I'm sitting there in Perth. It's about 4 p.m., and I go, oh, <laughs> I don't know anybody here. I don't know where I'm going to stay tonight. I got $30 left. I haven't got a job. What shall I do? And I sat for a while, and I had a kind of experience because I've always been interested in Krishnamurti, who's an interesting spiritual teacher who basically teaches all our problems is because we're too focused on ourselves if you just let go of all of that. And I had... An interesting moment there but anyway I decided to go to the University of Western Australia which wasn't far away the buildings were not by chance and I'd just come from Auckland University so I had my student card and so I went to their office and I said look I'm just over from Auckland University um, would you by any chance have any lodgings for students in this area and they said yeah 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 no you know they gave me a road and I went down the road with four different addresses and you know each the first three it didn't work out. Somebody didn't come to the door or somebody said they didn't, you know, the inn was full. Yes. And I get to the fourth one, I go up to the second floor, knocked on the door, and a guy comes to the door and he says, yeah, hi, what do you want? There's a young guy about my age. And I said, hi, I'm Michael Preston. I'm, I'm wondering if I could, have you got a room? Um, he said, where are you from? And I said, from New Zealand. And he said, you don't sound like you're from New Zealand because I didn't have a Kiwi accent. And he said, where are you from then? And I said, well, I'm, I was at school in Kenya. And he goes, so was I. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I go, yeah, I went to boarding school. So did I. And I said, when? And I said, oh, I was there in the 50s and very first, you know, up to 90. So was I. It was extraordinary. I said, well, I don't think we went to the same school. He, so he said his school, mine wasn't. But we were about 30 miles away from each other, the two schools. So anyway, he said, come in, come in, come in, you can stay. Um, I've got a room, there's a guy coming when school starts, which was February or something in Australia. Um, you can have it for free until this guy comes. And so then I was staying with him, and then he said, I've got to get some work, we better go and get a job. We could go down to Swan Brewery and work there, putting bottles, and, but we'll have to lie about our ages, we have to say we're 21, uh -huh. so we did. And we just stacked these beer bottles in the thing, and the job went from... I forget, six in the morning till two in the afternoon, something. Then I took a shower, I put some nice clothes that I had, and I went to these big offices, like Konzink, Tinto and other ones. And that's how I got this uh, geology job. And again, I, I didn't have any luck. I was you know, taking the elevator up to some fancy office there, employment office. And one day I got in this big Konzink, Tinto tower, because they're making big money, you know, with their um, nickel mining at the time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I went up to the top floor and um, came out of the elevator, went towards the personnel office, and a 
guy walked past and looked at me and disappeared into the elevator. I walked to the office, there's a woman there. And I said, oh, <clears throat> I'm just looking for a job. Um, and she said, oh, I'm sorry, the employment officer's just left. You just missed him. And I, I come back tomorrow. So I go, oh, okay. So I turned around and I walked out of the office back towards the elevator. And just then the elevator went ding. And out of the door stepped the same guy. And he said, are you looking for a job? And I said, I am. And he said, I saw you. And he come in the office and got a job. What? Yeah. So I've had a lot of experiences where something has been conveyed without words, you mm -hmm. know. So he said, yeah, there's a job up in near Kalgoorlie, a field assistant. You'd be working with a geologist. I said, what's a field assistant? Oh, you, you peg claims, you do mm -hmm. soil sampling. Do, you live in these uh, trailers, caravans mm -hmm. in the bush. And he said, they, they've got a cook and a, he cooks your meals. And he said, basically, your money just goes straight into the bank. You don't have to pay for your board and food. And so we worked 12 days on, two days off every fortnight. Okay. But I didn't go into Kalgoorlie. Most of the guys went in and blew some of their money there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like a Wild West town. Oh, right. Yeah, I didn't go. I just went off in the bush and camped or walked around or, you know, read books or whatever. And um, so all the money went in the bank, and that's how I saved up to go to England. Amazing. And seven months later, I had a decent amount of money, and I got on a plane. I went back to Patrick Cornish, this guy. Uh -huh. He became um, a reporter, actually, for some newspaper. Okay. I met him in England years later. But, um, yeah, you know, these things just open up mm -hmm. if they're meant to be in a strange way. Yeah, and, and if you're risking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I if you have trust, but I think you can't I don't know, but looking at my own life, it's trying to go in a positive direction. Right. And then trusting that something will come to your help. You'll be met. You'll be met. Mm. And that's what I definitely has happened over the years. And the last one was this Vicky Berkman suddenly <laughs> emerging. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks yeah. for thanks for sharing. Sure. Um, it it's really affirming to hear those stories. Oh, the Queen. <laughs> oh wait. River asked me about see, the Queen. <laughs> see the Queen story. We haven't even gotten to Red Nose Brush Stop. <laughs> but, yeah. The Queen. My father made films for the British government, and one day he came back. We were still in Kampala in those days. I hadn't yet been sent off to boarding school. I suppose I was four and a half, and I had a little green tricycle. You know the ones with big wheels. Yeah. And Dad came home and he said to my mum, tomorrow I'm going to Ginger, which is where the Lake Victoria goes into the Nile. Okay. And they built a huge, I mean, I didn't know this at that age, but they built this big power station there. So it's a gigantic, um, um, what do you call it, um, hy hy hydroelectrics dam. Dam, yeah. And the Queen is coming to open it, which she was. She, the Queen was coming to this great ceremony and probably the first British hydroelectric dam in Africa or something. And so he said, I'm going to film her tomorrow. And I said, Dad, can I come? I want to see the Queen. I want to see the Queen. He goes, no, 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 no. This is my job, you know. Uh -huh. So he, he goes off to work the next morning. And I had a friend called John Gardner. We both had tricycles. And we said, let's go and see the Queen. I told him about it. He says, OK, because it's 50 miles away, but to a... <laughs> 
a four-year-old 50 miles is nothing. Yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> so we go to my mum and we say, Mum, we want to go and see the Queen and we can we have some sandwiches? And she goes, oh, yeah, just childs. They're, yeah. they're just fantasizing. I'll make them the sandwiches, give them the lemonade. So she did that and then John and I headed off and we rode across this old disused airstrip near our house. And um, by the end of the airstrip, John said, well, I said, well, come on, John, let's go. And he said, no, no, I can't, I can't. You know, he turned back. But my dog kept going with me. So went off the airstrip, down the side, the road to the edge of the town, stopped at a little park, I can remember eating a sandwich and drinking some lemonade, got onto the main road out of Kampala and rode, and some African riders came next to me and talking to me, I could speak Swahili pretty fluently. I don't know what they must have thought of this little kid riding his trice, but they didn't stop me. And um, my dog was running alongside, and then he cut out after a couple of miles, I suppose. But anyway, I, I can remember just my father arriving on the scene. So what happened was, well, I didn't know how far I'd gone, but it came out that I was about four miles out of Kampala and on the way to Jinja. And what happened was my dad hadn't yet gone. He'd gone to his office to pick up his filming equipment. Mm -hmm. And now he was on his way to Jinja, so he's behind me. And so suddenly as I was riding along, there's this unholy horn. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Can you imagine how terrified he must have? He was furious. What the heck are you doing here, you stupid boy? And he grabbed my tricycle and put me in the back of the car and threw the tricycle. It was like a wagon type of car, you know. Put the tricycle in, did a U-turn, drove back home, brought me home, and said to my mum, here's your son. <laughs> Look what your son has done. <laughs> and, and drove off to Ginger. I never got to go to Ginger. Or but queen. but but then somehow or other that got into the little local newspaper. Did there was it really? a story, yes, and said the Georgian spirit is not yet dead. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So I tried to see the queen, but I didn't manage. Four miles on a tricycle. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your son. Yes, yeah, he was he was very mad at mm -hmm. me. I was very disappointed, of course. I mm -hmm. never got to see the queen. <laughs> what a great story. Yeah. Well, I'm. Can we do this again sometime? Sure. Can I come back yeah, and yeah, check yeah. in? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you're going to make such a long... Are you just going to splice bits together or something? No, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I'll come back and listen to it. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of great stuff. And, um, yeah, and y your, your life is a testimony of someone who has um, really trusted in their own... Mm -hmm. uh, their own heart hmm. and and moved you know into into those places where it couldn't have worked out and yeah and and then you've you've developed and cultivated yourself in such a way where now you're a master educator and i mean i'm extremely grateful for the three years that river got to spend with you because it it really gave mm -hmm. him a solid foundation and, yeah. he, and he's and he's thriving. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. That's. Yeah, it, they will forget those three years probably, but you know, at least the stability of what they had. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, as you say, that's a foundation for them. And yeah. for for you, you're working on the music, and yes, um, I'm I'm working on that that recorder book right now. Um, of course, I'm doing all these practical jobs, helping my wife with the preschool a lot more than I could before. Um, and 
then when I've done that book, then my next project is the first grade story. Okay. But again, I mean, I don't know what will come towards me in the way of help with publishing. And I don't, you know, my wife says, oh, just use your own pictures because I did all these blackboard right. pictures. I've got them actually rolled up in the garage somewhere. Right. <laughs> but uh, but I, I met somebody, I went to England for this little um, retirement trip last October mm -hmm. to see friends and see my daughter. And uh, on the way back, I was sitting in Calgary Airport because I went by Canadian Airlines and got chatting to the woman next to me and she turned out to be a children's author. So I said, oh, um, you know, I'm thinking of writing this book. And then when I mentioned the pictures, she said, oh, publishers usually choose their own artists. They don't let you. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, you know. Um, but she said you could self-publish. Mm -hmm. That's another way to go. Then you have control over what you do. Mm -hmm. If you go through a publisher, then they take care of all of, you know, with my ukulele books, there's this Hawaiian publisher that has done the two right. ones I did and then these new ones. So, you know, I have to put the book together and I'm able to structure it exactly as I want. But the covers of those ukulele books, they decided on those covers. And um, then they distribute it. So right. I don't have to worry about whether there's... Marketing. You know, and yeah, and actually yeah. the first ukulele book, I got a really nice, um, what do you call it... Um, Royalty? Royalties, yeah. yeah. I was in, when it first came out in Hawaii. I was getting about four thousand a year from it. That's amazing. Twice they give me a check every six months, and I'd get two thousand. It's gone down to about eight hundred twice a year now. Wow! But uh, it's about a dollar a book, so it means yeah. sixteen hundred books are still selling each year. But I don't know how these little ones—they've just started. They're in these stores in Hawaii called ABC stores, which are in Waikiki and okay. <laughs> tourist stores. Right. I don't know whether people are going to buy them or not. And they're much cheaper. They're six bucks each, gotcha. those little books. Yeah. Um, why wouldn't you want to do your own pictures since you're such an accomplished painter? I, I just don't, you know, I was reading a biography of Beatrix Potter. My, yeah. son, my brother sent me that. And it's fascinating to learn how she, she was working on drawing and r painting her whole life. You know, yeah. she had little pets and she yeah. was, so her, you know, the Beatrix Potter books, she, you know, the, the little animals, Peter Rabbit and stuff like yes. that, were built on a lifetime of amazing mm -hmm. artistry. I haven't done that, you know, I'm not a trained artist. Um, but I might be able to find a Waldorf teacher that's, um, I know of one at Three Cedars that's a very good artist and, you know, maybe she'd be interested to do it. I don't know. Mm. I've got to navigate that and find out. Because Red Nose and Brush Top, who he's fascinated in, right. <laughs> who are my inventions, he's too yes. naughty gnomes that, that live on this island um, you know they have to be a certain way <laughs> they, uh -huh. they have, right. to, have to look like how I see them <laughs> mm -hmm. maybe you'll end up doing it yourself I might yeah I might yeah because you I, I remember seeing them on the chalkboard and <laughs> yeah. I, I know what they look like <laughs> you do <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. well it, I, I know that you'll put the energy out when the time is right yeah and you'll be met yeah. just like you have been in everything else he has been met huh aren't those stories amazing those synchronicities he talks about uh, listening into those meaningful coincidences that happen i totally believe in those too so i hope you enjoyed that exchange as much as i did as a reminder cruise on over to itunes and write a short note little review um, that would help and if you want to reach out to me 
Joel DeYoung, J-O-E-L-D-E-J-O-N-G is my handle on Twitter, Instagram, and Medium. Uh, feel free to shoot me a note. And if you have any questions about Waldorf education, too, that uh, weren't answered, you can uh, hit me up or, or hit Michael up. I can connect you, too, as well. And my email is actually joel at lyman.space, so J-O-E-L at L-I-M-E-N dot space, S-P-A-C-E. If you have any questions, uh, Waldorf education has really impacted our family, not only just our kids and their school life, but it spills over into our home life as well and really helps us create the kind of uh, family culture that we desire. And it's a learning experience. We're learning, but uh, I'd be happy to share that with anybody who's interested. So, all right, until next time.